Welcome, welcome, welcome to Rogue Bogues. This is episode 18. Myself and Mike at, at Hoop Consultants. How are you going? Bogues, I'm just, I'm waiting for my fucking pink slip, man, for uh, missing out on Monty Williams. I've had uh, multiple <laughs> messages telling people tell me how much of a fucking idiot I am. Of course, you're the superstar of the fucking podcast, so you're not going to get it. I'm getting it mostly for being the fucking moron. And even though I wouldn't pick Monty as the head, he'd probably be second. And uh, also, I didn't. I forgot Quinn Snyder's name last week. That was great. That's <laughs> my dementia Utah. moment. Yeah, like Utah. I called him Utah. If anybody's as fat as the state, it's me, not him. But uh, yeah, so I would have had Monty second just because, you know, I still like my Thibodeau pick, but Monty Williams definitely should have been mentioned, man. Yeah, and we'll, we'll touch on that. We make mistakes and we admit it. Yeah. Uh, we definitely left a glaring omission and it was Monty Williams. So thanks to everyone that let us know that. We'll touch on that a little bit um, deeper later. But I want to start with um, Kevin Love, something that's been you know a bit of an issue for the last couple of years, to say the least, is, is obviously we know he has um, some mental health demons and whatnot. I think we all do at times, to be honest. I think if you play in the NBA long enough, um, whether you're a coach, a GM, you're going to have some sort of mental health issues, to be honest. And I'm not downplaying mm. his issues, but I mean, I had, I had, you know, there, there were ups and downs and anxiety at times for myself with injuries and whatnot. So I think you, you have to battle through it. But um, he's had another probably interesting week. He, he had the um, the clip against the Raptors where he was frustrated with a foul call, uh, goes to inbound the ball, slaps it away from the referee, basically slaps it right to a Toronto Raptor. They They pick it up and shoot a three. Um, he then goes on a, a rant after the game um, and hitting just all the all the things you're supposed to say. I love Cleveland, ride or die. I want to be here. I need to do the right thing. So didn't really know how serious it was. I saw the clip. It looked like he was trying to be serious, but it also looked like he was hitting every cliche under the sun. And it's just, yeah, it's just been interesting to watch kind of, you know, when he came in the league, man, when he was in Minnesota, I was in Milwaukee. So that were kind of the close western conference rivals we had because we were close to, to each other an hour flight away and he was a beast man like he was you know 20 and 20 a night he was having 30 rebound games and you know he didn't shoot as many threes then but he's, he, he seems like he's a shell of his former self and i think obviously the, the mental health thing is one thing but even his game it's completely changed i think falling in love with that three has really changed what he does but i mean how do you how do you see everything that he's gone through i mean cleveland's in a rebuild obviously and, and having him around yeah, you know, Bogues, it, it's it's an interesting situation that teams and players go through, right? Like, okay, he has the mental health thing. I mean, obviously, he knows more about that than we do, so we don't really know the inner workings of that. But, like, this thing could change on you pretty quick as far as what your game is compared to what the, the league sees you as. And, you know, early on in his career, I mean, he had like a five-year run Bogues from like 2009 to 2014, where he averaged 11 rebounds a game, 15.2, 13, 3, 14, and 12 and a half, respectively. And to me, I thought he was a smart, one of the top two or three smartest players in the league. Here's this fat, chubby kid with short arms that doesn't look like an athlete, but like finds a way to get a shot off, score, rebound, pass. Like he, he had all the, the makings of a great player, but like you look at him and you just like, there's no fucking way this guy's going to be this productive. And he did that. And then along the way, when the three point shot came in, you know, his game flourished. He ended up being one of the better space, you know, space fours in the league and space four, space five, however you want it. 
you know, how, however you want to say it. I mean, at first he's in Minnesota. They didn't really have a lot going on. It was like him and Al Jefferson. And then they ended up trading him for Wiggins uh, and he goes to Cleveland. And then, you know, they get LeBron and his game's revitalized. And he's this, you know, third option on this team with him, you know, LeBron and Kyrie and, and ends up being good. But then the cop that gets fucking pulled under him, LeBron leaves, Kyrie leaves. And now he's stuck holding the bag. But they like both sides, like they're terrible. They're rebuilding. They sign them to this four year, $120 million deal. So like, it's like the big short. Like if there was a fucking NBA version of the big short, it'll be starring Kevin Love. It's 120 million. You're on top for a second. Like where you're supposed to be. Okay. We're going to build around Kevin. Fuck it. We're going to go around. And then that's it. Then now you're holding, now he's two years into a $120 million deal. The team's pretty bad. You know, you got all these young players. You're not really going anywhere yet. And now you're just stuck here and the frustration showing. Look, the mental health stuff that he dealt with off the court to me, Bogues, okay, he dealt with, the, he's dealing with that. But these outbursts on the court, to me, it's like you're quitting on your team. It's bad. It's bad professionalism. No one forced you to sign this four year deal. No one forced you. And you know, you knew what your team was going to be. And to have these outbursts and then like, you know, the thing about Dale McCoby, and we would talk about it a lot, is he goes, look, I owe it to the fucking fans that pay $700 a night, $300 a night, $400 a night to fucking give them a show. Like, I don't care how I'm feeling, if I'm hurt or if I'm not hurt, if my team sucks or we're a championship team, I'm going to try to get 45 and win every night. I want them to, like, leave and say, you know what, Kobe left it on the fucking floor, the Lakers left it on the floor, we're going to go from there. Like, you sign this deal, it's a contract not only that you're getting this money, but you have to live up to the expectations of that contract where you're going to bring it every night. And then also, you have to answer for some of the shit that you do. Like... This whole media thing where you, you know, he come like I, that play was embarrassing for sure, but it was how he handled the media the next day or the, that, that night when he went on that 13 minute like talk, like not answering any questions. Here's the deal. And he's li like literally like a fucking elitist. He's like talking and he's like talking down on the media. Like I get it if like the media is asking the same shit over and over. Where are you going to go in free agency? Where are you going to go in the trade? Do you like your coach? I get all that. Like you're sick of it. You don't want to answer it. But when you do something like that, you're getting thirty million a fucking year. You, I think at, I think as a professional, even if you're going to get your ass kicked that night by the media, you got to face that shit. And that's the difference I think between this era player and the era before. Whereas, you know, those players, they didn't like it, but they dealt with it media-wise. And I just think that that was – I wasn't a fan of what he did on the court, and I doubly wasn't a fan of what he did not facing the media and not, and not answering questions for it. Where does it leave them, though? That's the question. They've got a young rebuilding team. They've got a lot of young assets that they're trying to build the right way. You've got now Kevin Love to 2023, I believe. He's a free agent on that big deal, which is – that's a whole separate debate of, of why. I mean, he had these issues going into signing that deal, right? You know, he, he, there were rumors that 
you know, when he he left the lock, left the game that one time and just drove home or whatever, whatever happened when he had a you know an anxiety attack or whatever, there were some people in that locker room that questioned whether he'd quit on the team. Um, and now whether that's fair or not is a separate conversation. You don't know what happened. We don't know what the mental health things were, but there were some players that thought that. So now you're now you're in a situation where you that that's the, he's kind of your leader. So and he's taken up most of your cap. Um, it's just an interesting interesting one to watch and. Going back to your your point, going back to your point, sorry uh, about about his game changing is I think he's a prime example of over emphasizing the three and and what we've spoken about is like when we talk about Giannis at times and we talk a lot about his three point shooting is let's say he did get a thirty five percent three point shot my uh, I'd be I'd be kind of wary of then is he going to attack as much as he once did that's Giannis right I think Kevin Love's somewhat fallen into that trap you know he's been he was a 20 and 20 guy he was a beast 18 feet from the basket face up he'd get get to his hook shots if he missed his shot he'd probably get his rebound most times or not and put it in um, and he'd hit the odd three ball where now it's reversed you're not getting really you know the last time he had a 10, 10 rebound game was actually the other night when he had when he was zero from zero from the field but usually he's just the floor space and not trying to get too physical so there is a happy medium there and, and he's a prime example of it in my opinion yeah that contract will be stretched stretched fucking quicker than any type pair of jeans that i try to put on folks <laughs> that they're gonna stretch him out i mean no I, I can't see a team giving up unless they're just like bad like one year contracts and there's some picks thrown in like i think for them look either they buy him out or they stretch the contract and then they just and then they go forward and to say, you know what, let's wash our hands of it. Allow him to go to another team if that's what he wants to do. I look, I see the frustration, man. I do. Like, they're not winning anytime soon. Here he is, he won a championship and then he got close a couple of times. He's been an all-star before, but that's the deal you sign, folks. Like, sometimes you're gonna be in championship situations, sometimes it's gonna be shitty, but you owe it to everybody involved. You put your name on it. You could have gone. You could have gone somewhere in free agency and said, fuck it, I'm going somewhere else. But you signed that deal. And it's not just about getting money. It's about being a professional and, and, and sort of living up to the expectations on and off the floor, what you got to do. And yeah, like, but he's so smart. He's a passer. He could rebound. Like I saw him in high school, right? And I went to the ABCD camp that Adidas ran in New Jersey when he was in high school. And here's a kid. He was like a 6'10 pro. I mean, look, like he had a gut. He had braces on every fucking joint in his body had a brace on it. You know, it, it and it was like, you know, it, like his joints, he didn't move well, but he passed the shit out of it. He was skilled, but he was like literally a fucking sumo wrestler trying to play basketball. And, and then he lost all this weight and he did what he had to do when he, you know, he was a little better at UCLA and then he got in the league. And then like a couple of years into Minnesota, he really slimmed down and, you know, he's done a lot to sort of, you know, make, make a name for himself, five year, five time all-star. But, you know, it's funny, folks, I didn't tell you this, but I actually helped negotiate his trade on draft day. Oh, wow. So, really? Yeah, so I was working for Tim Grover at the time. We did our pre-draft training and we got LJ Mayo, you know, for pre-draft. You know, they spent about two months with us and we get him ready for the draft. We spoke about stuff like that on the pod before. And we supposed to get a couple of other players. I thought we might have had a chance maybe for Derek Rose. That probably would have been an outside chance, whatever. But Beasley, Michael Beasley. But so I thought like Kevin McHale was going to have a high pick. They were supposed to get the first pick in the draft. And then I call Kevin right before the lottery. 
I didn't think I would, I'd, I'd, he'd pick up. He picks up. I'm talking to him like during the fucking lottery. This guy, with him and I going back and forth. And I knew him a little bit from my time in Boston. You know, him and Ainge were close. And so we started talking. I said, Mikhail, I'll give you some intel on our guys that we got coming in. And he said, that's great. So he doesn't get the first pick. He gets like the third pick. And then Minnesota gets the fifth pick. I mean, the Memphis gets the fifth pick. Uh, and Chris Wallace was, was the one who hired me in Boston, he was the GM. And he was a little bit paranoid about talking to people. He didn't want to get anything out. But his owner was like hot, hot to trot to get OJ Mayo. And OJ Mayo was a higher prospect than Kevin Love at the time. So Minnesota thought, look, we could draft Mayo and then, tr- you know, draft him for somebody else, get some assets going forward. And, and then get our real guy that we wanted, Kevin Love, instead of drafting Kevin and not getting anything. And, and you, know, you know, it's better to do it that way. No one knew it with Oklahoma City was going to do it for. They ended up drafting Westbrook. So for about two weeks straight, I'd be talking to, like, Mikhail, what he want, you know, what he's trying to get from Memphis. And then I'll bring that to Memphis. And then I'd bring back Memphis to back to Minnesota. Did that. It was like a fucking ping pong ball for, like, two months here I am negotiating, uh, helping negotiate a contract with two fucking millionaires that could have just talked to themselves. I'm like, I was thinking to myself every night is like, I wonder if they're going to fucking know that I'm not even needed in this equation. I don't know what the <laughs> fuck I'm doing. Like, I'm the fucking Pony Express here, like just bringing messages from one guy to another. And then they ended up making a draft day deal. Um, you know, it's a bunch of like dead weight. They exchanged picks and they got some dead weight. I, I think the trade was like... You know, so Brian Cardinal, Jason Collins, Mike Miller uh, to Minnesota for Buckner, Marco Yarich, O.J. Mayo, Antoine Walker. So, you know, that was sort of the trade. But, yeah, it's 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 a shit show, you know, what's happening. It, look, it happens, folks. Like, look, it's, you know, I'm sure it happened to you. Like, maybe a team was good at one point and then, like, overnight they trade guys, they trade guys, and now or you're traded to a shitty situation or your team ends up being a, in a rebuilding mode and, like, that's the, like, what do you think about that stuff, folks? Like, how does that affect you? Like, you know, has that happened to you in your career as far as, like, team shifting gears as far as, you know, and now you went from bad to good, right? Like, in, in Golden State, but that did that ever happen to you in Milwaukee or anything like Not that? Not really. Other stuff? I, I mean, going to Dallas obviously did, but, I mean, the, the, the point I'd make with Kevin Love is, you mentioned it. Um, it is frustrating the situation he's in, but you're not. On, he's not on a vet min contract. He's not on a, a two year six million. He he signed a max deal as their veteran leader star. You know, so you gotta you gotta take you gotta roll the punches and know. Hey, I'm signing this contract. We're probably not gonna win for a bit, but they're overpaying me for it. I can't get this money anywhere else. Um, I assume he would have went to a winning team if they were gonna pay him that money, but no one had that cap space to pay him, and they kept him, and he's gotta abide by that part of of, of, of the bargain, right? But um, yeah, I mean, look. It happened to me somewhat in Dallas, but I was on a, on a vet min deal, so I could get away. You know, I could. Yeah. You know, it wouldn't cost the team much money. You ended up, you know, I ended up being traded and then waived and then and then moving on, which was all strategic. But it does get frustrating. It's something you have to deal with. But at the same time, if Dallas, you know, if Dallas signed me to a four year. $60 million contract and said, look, you might not play a lot, you might, blah, blah, blah. Hey, what do I need to do? <laughs> you know what I mean? That's that's yeah. the difference. <laughs> yeah. I think that's where this gets lost, where where, where it is, you know, you, Kevin Love's going to understand that he's paid, you know, a lot to be a star, but also there's a there's a portion of that money that's going towards, we've got a young rebuilding group and they're looking at you like how to handle things. So, the last thing you want is a Garland or a Sexton or, or someone 
to um, emulate what you're doing when they're, you know, a 10-year veteran because then, it, then it's, you know, that, that's that's a lot of negative negativity. So, I mean, I'd be interested to watch how it goes. If he does get stretched or waved, who picks him up, where, where he ends up. But he's he's turning 33 this year as well. So, he you know, his, yeah. body, his body type, not the most athletic guy as it is, really good three-point shooter. Uh, maybe only has another year or two at an NBA level, in my opinion. I think beyond that, he'll be he'll be gone. But um, we'll follow that closely. The next one for me was was the Warriors' ups and downs, as I have them on TV in the background. They've just gone on a thirty to five run against Houston, but it is Houston or whatever. Um, the, the, just the ups and downs. I think they, you know, the ups and downs are really glaring. That they look they look all world one game, and then the next game they look like you know. The, 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 Awful, you know. The Dallas game was one that we we discussed, where Dallas go on a 20, 20 or thirty point run and blow the game open by halftime. To me, looking at it, it's as simple as if Steph's not gunning for him and scoring, they um they don't have a chance to win games. How, how do you see that? I see the same thing. I just see a lack of talent if they can't just score and outscore you. I think you know the Steph's like the way you use Steph is you're gonna have to he's gonna have to be your MJ every night where he's going to have to get 35 to 40 for you to have a chance against most teams, you know, and Wiggins is so up and down and Wiseman's been, you know, obviously he's out. Um, you don't know what you're going to get from Ubre from night to night. And then the rest of the bench really doesn't give you a lot. You know, again, they give you some, some nights, some that doesn't. Obviously Draymond's more of a facilitator rebounder, you know, than, than a scorer this year. So I think it's just going to be really tough without clay. And then without that other piece, I, that they're missing, I just think it's going to be really tough for them, you know, for sure to to get something going. But um, the effort thing, man. It, it, but it's not just Golden State; it's across the league. And you know, I just think that with the the whole bubble thing, the attitude of players of how they approach games. Like sometimes they'll give it to you, sometimes they won't. And then it's like next game. You know, it's always this whole next possession, next game, next month mentality where like. I right, fuck it. Let's get to the next one instead of like, you know. I know you don't have to. You don't. You shouldn't dread on a lot of things because it'll clog your mind. But you're gonna have to. You know, you're gonna have to put a string of games together where you're playing well, and they just haven't been able to do that for long stretches of time. Yeah, I think with the glaring thing was that the effort. You know, they're not. They're not in a position where they're one to five, one to six. They're not a Brooklyn that can have two or three of those nights in a month and still be okay, um, which we see a lot. And we're seeing a lot with with a lot of teams that are um, in the bubble and the coronavirus. We're seeing a lot of that. But they're one of those teams that's that, that six or seven to 11 spot. Like you, there's really no room for error if you want to get into those playing games. I mean, they're still probably going to make it even if they, they go 500 the rest of the way because New Orleans is such a shit show and they're three games behind them in, in, a, in 11th. But you'd think there'd be a bit of kind of alarm bells ringing like we got a chance to at least sneak into the playing games. And Golden State's one of those teams that you put them in a playing game and Steph has 50, you could knock off a really good team in those playing games. And then in a seven-game series, a different story. But in a playing game, you'd almost bet on them just because they have they, they do have Steph, right? And and we, I just saw that, you know, a couple of minutes ago in this Houston game where Houston looked like they had control. They're up 10 and, and now they're down 20. Um, and that's how quickly you can turn with this step, right? But going in a seven-game series, probably not. But it's just it's just been interesting to see that the effort thing um, for a team that, you know, does have, like you said, they don't have a lot of scoring. They don't have a lot of super talent right now because their injuries, obviously, Steph and Wiggins and, and Draymond are probably the most talented guys. You have to at least bring that effort. Like your bench guys have to, have to bring that effort. So it was kind of glaring 
the last couple of games of them, you know, just being so helter-skelter and up and down. And they're good enough to get to eight. Like, right now they're 14 out of first, right? Like, Memphis is sitting there at eight. They're 12 and a half out. I mean, you're only a game and a half with, like, about nine games to go where you could get up to nine, eight, you know, and, and sort of make a little bit of run at this. And But that's just sort of the mentality of the NBA for the most part, Bogues, you know? Like the competitive player that's competitive every night. I mean, you could probably count it on two hands, maybe, maybe three, uh, two and a half hands on the players that are strictly competitive every night. They bring it every night. You know, it's tough, man. It's just, you know, you blame Corona, you could blame social. I, I don't know what you blame, but like, you know, you see it across the league with all these blowouts. Like a team plays well one night, they get blown up by 40 the next night. You know, they come back, they, they you know, they play the same team that back to back. Once they lose by 30, then they win by 25. Like, there's a lot of that going on. It, it's hard to chart. Like, what, what's what's the issue? I think it's just the amount of games. I can't, I can't be a hypocrite and say that I've never, I've coasted through some games before. I've, you know, we're down 20 in the third and you're like, shit, we're not, we're not bringing this back. Let me just, you know, whatever. Everyone, yeah. most players have done it. Even those elite have done it. The difference is they just they don't do it on stretches. It might be a one-off or or a rarity throughout a season. It might be two games in a season where they're like you know Co- even Kobe's had those games where he's you know got frustrated and refused to shoot or whatever. But very very rare. Yeah. But there's a lot of players that the, the the slightest amount of adversity gets shut down. And the only team I'd ever been on that that didn't do that in regular season was the Warrior team with the 73 wins, and and we won 73 wins. Because of that, we won 73 games, sorry, because it was taken personal whenever someone would beat us. So whenever whenever we'd lose a game, it was like, I've spoken about this at length, it was it was almost an awkward environment the day after we'd lose a game because we'd all be looking at each other like, motherfucker, like, why didn't you box out? Or why didn't you <laughs> why didn't you get a hand up on that late three? Or why didn't you rotate? You weren't there for my crackback. Or why did you not swing the ball when someone was open in the corner? And that's what made us a great team. But then, like you said, we didn't dwell on that for days. It was the next day was kind of that awkwardness in the air. We were like, shit, whoever we play next is in some trouble, right? Um, and that was the only team I'd been on that was like that. That that you know, that run we had for three or four years, but it, mainly that year. And that's rare. Um, teams in you know, in Milwaukee, we had veterans, we had people moving through. Um, I'd been part of different rebuilds and, and you just don't get that where there'll be a handful of games, even even outside of coronavirus years, where I think it's just too many games and guys can take that shit for granted. You know, you go to Miami and guys are out late, it's like, oh, you know, we had games um, in Milwaukee when I was there where the coaches basically knew like we're, we're probably gonna, we're going to get smacked tomorrow like because <laughs> just 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 based on we're going to South Beach like guys are not going to sleep yeah you know we're we're battling mm-hmm. for a playoff spot we're about five hundred we could make it or not and we're probably going to get you know we're going to be down twenty to twenty to seven at the first time out <laughs> and I'm going to have to try to make an adjustment with some of our bench guys that are ready to play and that's kind of you know pretty alarming but it is what it is in the NBA and that's just something that. Um, you know, I think the amount of games contribute to. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I, I could, I could definitely go with that, especially with the schedule now. You know, with all these back to backs they got to play, and then the amount of games they're playing by the week, and you know, you can't expect those guys to bring it every night, like you said. There, there are very few that did it, and you know, you even hear stories about like the '80s Celtics teams. You know, when they were so good, like in '86, they would just, you know, sometimes they'd sleepwalk through the first two and a half quarters, and then finally turn it on, like. You know, sometimes you get bored. There aren't many great teams like that that can get bored. But, you know, it just um, – it's weird to see, but it just, it's just something that, we, you know, that people got to deal with today, I guess. 
And then I'm going to segue this into something that we didn't have planned to talk about. How do you, the playing games, right? So there's two arguments for the playing games. I've heard the argument of like a 9-10 seed that, you know, is way below 500 shouldn't be even a chance to play for the playoffs considering you're playing 70 or 80 regular season games. Then you've got the other mm-hmm. argument of it kind of incentivizes you that if you're in that bottom half that you don't go full tank mode. I would agree with that. I've actually enjoyed watching these, the bottom part of that who's going to be in the playing game. Um, I've, I've enjoyed that the last three or four weeks because I think it's bringing some excitement and, and, and the excitement of it being a one-off game, there's some intrigue there. Um, so I think it's it's not a horrible idea. Look, it doesn't look great if a team that is in 10th ends up making the, the first round, even potentially the second round that, that one, you know, went 35 and whatever. Um, but I think it has... It has made these games a bit more meaningful. The, wor- the worst the worst place to be in NBA world is to be a team like, let's say, Golden State on a normal year where you're, you're probably not going to get the eight seed and you know it with about 15, 20 games left. And then they start doing that, you know, the Minnesotas and the Memphises from the past of, of, of tanking and, and, and strategically guys are hurt. And we did it in Golden State with Mark Jackson when I first got there. You know, we um, had about mm. 20-something games left and they literally shut everyone down with all these kind of, you know, interesting injuries and blah, blah, blah. And, and we ended up getting a, keep, keeping our pick that was protected, which turned into Harrison Barnes. So there's a reason to do it and you can't blame teams for doing it. But I think this now somewhat incentivizes teams a little bit more that don't go full tank mode. What, what are your thoughts on it? Do you like it or are you going to wait to see how it plays out? No, I like it, Bogues. You know, I, did, I was sort of in the middle on it, but now I sort of like it. Like you said, it, you know, it, it sort of livens up the season, especially those teams that usually tank that are in the middle, you know, middle there. Now they want, you know, it's sort of, first of all, it turns it into a little bit of an NCAA tournament deal where it's a one-off, you know, and then you could advance like a, you know, a 9-10 that was never in the playoffs before. You know, you win your 9-10 game and then you have a chance. You got to beat the 7-8, you know, twice, obviously. But like, I think it's a, pr- a pretty good deal, you know, to be able to do that. It adds some excitement for sure, you know. Now, I, don't, I know how teams aren't excited about it now because of the amount of games they've had to play, but... Because of Corona and, and the way the schedule played itself out, I think it sort of opened up this opportunity to sort of do this going even forward, even when everything opens up full. I think they should just keep this as well. Like the playing field, it sort of adds a little excitement. And then, you know, let's be honest, like we talk about it all the time, year in and year out about the tank and how disgusting it is and how how many teams do it. Now, probably the bottom four teams would probably, you know, jockey for it. But before it was like all those teams are trying to jockey for a better pick. Even the teams that like were going to be like nine or 10 would do it. Now it's like everybody's fighting. Even the, even 11 and 12 was fighting to try to get to 10. So I, I, I like it. I, I think when, when, you know, let's be honest, the NBA is not all that competitive on a night to night basis unless it's a big game or it has big implications. I think. It adds a little bit more excitement. It adds a little bit more, you know, teams going at each other a little bit and adds just more competitive nature, you know, throughout the league. And I think it's good. I agree. So we'll watch that space. And I think it I think it'll only ramp up with these um these playing games and then like I said, the storyline of a you know, Steph dropping fifty and, and, and then all of a sudden potentially facing a, a higher ranked team like the Lakers, you know, like um in, in the next round will be fun to watch. But I'm gonna move on to Kevin Porter Jr. I'm going to ask you, have you ever seen a departing superstar be better replaced by a guy um, for both their on-court and off-court escapades? Well, I mean, unbelievable, man. Lefty. Lefty, shoots step-back threes, just dropped a 50 ball. 
frequently visits strip clubs and gets out on the town. I mean, it's it's basically James Harden's younger twin. I think they. I think what happened was I think Daryl Morey cloned got got like a little piece of DNA off of uh, off of Harden's skin and like cloned him into a potato, and you know it ended up getting this kid. Because it's uh, unbelievable that those guys sort of have a lot, a lot in common, for sure. They do, and it's it's been good to watch. I mean, we spoke about how talented this kid was um, when he was in, you know, Cleveland, and, and everything happened there with the soup. And it's been good to see him perform. It just goes to show that he he is he is that talent everyone thought he was. It's that off court, it's off court stuff. Can he can he calm that down the next couple of years and, and really solidify himself as a as a star and then a superstar and then an all star? I think he has all the tools as as we've seen to drop a fifty ball. I don't care how you know how you're labeled or who you are. That's that's a very very tough feat to accomplish, um, even in today's game with all the free throws and three point shooting. So credit to him, and, and he did it at a very efficient clip. It wasn't like he was just, you know, it wasn't like he took forty shots to get it. Um, he did a very good job with it. So I'm interested to see. Yeah, how about more 50, 50, you know, fifty point nights and less time with footage on the fucking, you know, on a fucking police cam on a strip club in the in the fucking. <laughs> oh, wow, yeah, that was. Yeah, I want to see him on the Jumbotron a lot more than I fucking want to see him on body cam footage, you know. And that's where he's got a sort of – and I understand that that was sort of a a weird deal. But, A, they obviously broke protocol because he he had to drop another 50. Unfortunately, they weren't points. There was 50,000. It was fine in the league. But, like, he's got to smarten up on those things and, you know – but I understand he was out. I don't know what the story is, but his teammate got attacked or got in some kind of altercation. It's not a great situation to be in. But, you know, he just has to figure, like, he's got the talent for sure. You know, I didn't see him much before this. And he's obviously done pretty well, even though Houston isn't very good. But he just has to clean up the other stuff. Just, you know, like, let that game mature. Let yourself mature. Take care of yourself. But, Sort of have good judgment when it comes to off the court stuff. No one's saying not to go out or not to have a good time. Look, NBA players are going to go to strip clubs. That just happens. But like, you just got to stay out of the public eye like that. You just want to sort of distance yourself. You are, you know, I, I, I didn't know there was an altercation. I thought maybe the soup was bad in the strip club and he fucking <laughs> threw another fit. But you know, obviously it wasn't. But he just has to smarten up on those things and just sort of stay out of harm's way. But I think you know the kid's got a little talent for sure. He's got he's got some talent and ability, and you know it'll be interesting to watch him going forward. Yeah, my my advice to him would be bring the party to your house. You've got some NBA money now. Um, there are strict protocols with co- all the COVID shit, and you, you can't really go out. You can't do what you want to do. Bring it to your house. Overpay some strippers, some some friends of yours, some boys, whatever you want to do. Bring it to your house. Have your fun there for now. Wait for this shit to die down. Yeah, you just can't afford to be in the media and trending after a fifty point night. You know, everyone's talking about 50, the fifty point night, but also talking about a fifty thousand dollar fine for breaking. NBA COVID rules, you know? Yeah, and if he's going to bring it to his house, unfollow Paul Pierce because you don't want to go on IG Live and follow <laughs> his Instagram. Delete the app. Yeah. <laughs> At least for that 24 Absolutely. Hours. Yeah. Some Steve Kerr comments I found interesting. He um, basically came out and said, I think it was after that Dallas game, funnily enough, it just basically said that um, 
you know what we've what we've just talked about the effort thing is, is is not a priority and it's hard to get that out of guys his comments read nba guys don't box out it's just the way it is every night on league pass i see the same thing players let guys come in from the weak side and they think i'll just get the rebound it's a disease that's rampant in the nba the problem is if you're a real small team like us then it's going to hurt you more than it'll it will other teams it's not even like a college box out or a high school box out in the nba it's more about locating the guy and just putting your hand or your forearm in his chest letting someone else go chase the ball so we're staring up at butterflies up in the air just looking at guys guys coming right by us um, that doesn't matter what kind of position it is what kind of shot it is it's just the awareness to go hit somebody um, and then he went on to say basically most of most of these guys didn't have a high school or college coach yelling at them for a combined eight straight years it's a different world today players grow up in a different way in terms of basketball background the detail is often the thing that is lacking now and then he, he does he does kind of tone it down a little bit and say he's basically saying that he thinks players today have much more skills than they did back in the day um, but just not as much effort and hard work and I agree uh, with him him in, in for the fact that the fundamentals of those little things that don't get you on Instagram uh, are no longer looked at as important. But what scratches my head with that is, dude, you're the head coach. <laughs> like, um, yeah. If this is a, if this is an issue, uh, all right, you can't control other teams you watch on League Pass, but this is an issue in your team. Call it out. You know, I mean, I know you have some veterans. I know, I know you have some guys that probably don't want to hear it at this point in their career or, or in a season that they're fighting for a 10th seed when they've been, you know, in the midst of trying to win two Pete, three Pete's, but you're the head coach. You're the, you're the guy that can fix it. <laughs> so I, I found, that's why I found these comments interesting because, I, I mean, if you can air that in the media, I hope you've aired that out to your players. You can watch film. I mean, it's sometimes it's as simple and subtle as, hey, film coach, get me every missed box out from last night's game. You know, put it in an edit that takes four minutes and 30 seconds or five minutes and we're going to sit there and watch it, you know, and you, I'm just going to let this play. I'm not going to say a word and your point will be made. And, and you know, you, you got to, like you've said many a times, you got to, you can't do that every day and you can't do it all the time. But if that's an issue within your team, like he said, they're smaller than everyone else. If they don't box out, they've got no chance. Call it out. How, how did you see all that? It's funny. Like the problem with the NBA with, you know, there's many problems, right? But the biggest thing is like, What's important? Meaning, okay, so your team doesn't box out. Well, most NBA practices, what are they doing? All right, they're watching film of what happened last game. They're putting in their 79 out-of-bounds plays. They're putting in their 421 ATOs they want to put in. They're getting shots up in practice. They yell at them about, okay, we're not boxing out. And I don't know Steve Kerr. I don't know how he runs business. So I'm not talking about him. I'm just talking about the league and the whole talking, uh, being around the league and talking to enough people. So boxing out's a problem. So you address it in film like they all do. They always address it in film. But then like, they just care about mostly result. So if they get a rebound, so if boxing out's their problem and they have 12 clips where they don't box out, but they get a rebound, they'll be like, that's a great effort for the rebound. That's it. No, no, no. You just fucking said, well, you don't box out. So how you need to do that, Bogues, is you take it to the practice court. You take it from the film to the practice court and say, look, fellas. And he's one of the only guys that has like this carbolage for his organization because of what he's done. He's, you know, won multiple championships there. They're going to be all in on him. So like you bring it to the practice floor and say, look, fellas, if you don't do it on the practice floor and you miss box outs, you know, when you could box somebody out, we're going to run. And then if you don't do it in a game consistently and you continue to do it, I'm going to sit you out because there is somebody on this planet that wants to suit up for Golden State that wants to box out to play in games. And you know what? Most teams, that'll get the coach fired 
here where he's in, like he's got this, these injuries he's dealing with. Everybody understands that he's a championship level coach. Like he can do this, and and like like nobody could fuck with him. But if you want it done, most NBA coaches are just gonna like yell at you in film, and like it has to be taken to the practice court, it has to be taken to the drills, it has to be taken to the games, and you got to call them out every second of every day that they don't do that. And sometimes NBA head coaches don't understand that they're just so caught up with result that they don't care about the actual process of that happening. I know they like to say process, process, process. It's, you know, it's, it's like space and pace. It's a fucking catchphrase. It's said in every interview, every fucking press conference in the history of mankind in the NBA. But if you don't do it like that and you call them on their shit every day, like, look, you're the head coach. You figure it out. It goes to show you how sometimes coaching's way overrated at the NBA. Like head coaches, I don't care how many championships you win. If you don't have the talent, like you're not going to you're not going to be that competitive coaches. They don't add a lot of wins to you unless they have the talent and can take you over the edge. Here's here's a guy who's won multiple championships. He's going to be in the, in the Hall of Fame. But like guys not boxing out, you would think that a Hall of Fame coach would get them to do that. But like it's you know, it's, it's easier said than done. But I think it's something, Bogues, that has to be taken serious. If that's what you want them to do, you got to call them out on it. You got to, and you got to use the bench. See, so many coaches are afraid that if you bench guys, guys will shut down on them, quit, and it's going to end up costing them their job. But look, if you want shit to get done, that's the only thing. Look, they're making 20 times what you're making. Like they've got more power with your owner in some instances than you do. But what you have over them is you could sit them. You can sit them. If that's a huge problem, that's the only way. You you can't yell at them for that long. They're going to tune you out. You can't just bitch about it in the media because they're going to shut down. The one thing you could just communicate is like, look, I don't like, like if, you, if you're going to get out rebounding that night, okay, I got to understand that. But if you don't fight consistently and actually make an effort to box out, I'm going to have to sit you. Then I'll put you back in, but I'm going to have to sit you. That's emphasized on if you if you have it as a point of emphasis – I think you're more than worried to do it. Where I think where NBA coaches get in trouble if they haven't really um, put it forward as a point of emphasis or addressed it, and then they want to make an example of a middle tier guy instead of their superstar. That's when you get those guys exactly. that are like, man, man, like fuck you, coach. Like you know, a superstar hasn't done that all year. Why are you why are you going at me? But if you let's say Steve Kerr now this last week or two weeks, your, your theme is being box out, get a body on every shot, guards get to the free throw line for the long rebounds. You take the guy out and you say, hey, this has been our point of emphasis, and all the good coaches. Like you said, they use the bench. They use the bench to 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 as as currency because that's the only currency they have. But the good ones will put that guy straight back in. So he'll take you out. An assistant will come yeah. and tell you you're sitting. And sometimes I've seen the good coaches do it two minutes into a quarter. Come out, hey. Our point of emphasis is box out. The player will throw a water bottle and a towel and then they'll give it a minute and then the coach will come back and say, now get your ass back in there. And then there's that, you know, you're not benching for the whole half. You're not causing problems. No, no. But you have Mm -hmm. to have that point of emphasis both on film, both at practice and make it known to the group. Um, And then I think it's more than feasible to use that currency. I totally agree with you. Yeah. One to 15, you just treat them the same. Look, if uh, Kemp Bazemore ain't doing it, you don't think that fucking Damian Lee's going to want to do it to get more time. You don't think Jordan Poole's going to want to do it. You don't think Toscano Anderson's going to do it. Like Nick Mannion, Nico Mannion, you don't think he's fucking begging for time. Like guys are begging. You can get them out of the D League. You can get players anywhere, you know, and and you just have to make it known to the group. Look, I'm going to do this. The problem with head coaches in the league, not all of them, but most, are going to say, we're going to do this. 
and then fucking Steph Curry misses five box outs, nothing's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. The second that fucking Pasco fucking misses a rebound, he's going to bench him for, for the rest of his contract. Yeah. You know, you got to do it with everybody. And if they know that it's going to happen to everybody, they're not going to be happy with it. But they, if they see that everybody's going through it, then it's a little bit easier to digest. No doubt. Totally agree. Okay, well, moving on to the NBL real quick. Just some some news. So, Ding Adell, I'm not sure if you're familiar with his game. He was in the G League for a number of years. Um, fringe NBA guy. was with Cleveland for a few 10 days back in the day. Anyway, he was a marquee signing with the Illawarra Hawks. Um, he came over and, and I think he signed a two-year deal. at pretty big money for the NBL. It it's rumored to be between four and 600K, which is, which is big for the NBL. Wow. He's yeah. just being cut in one year into his deal where obviously that they the rules are in the NBL, I believe, that you have to pay out that year and then 50% of any following years. Um, I wonder if they've uh-huh. got a discount, but just, just struggled from day dot. Um, looked like he couldn't figure out the pace of the game, read and react type stuff. Really good one-on-one guy um, as far as an ISO, but, but struggled. So just some news that was very, very interesting for a team to do that. I hope everything's all right with, with Dang injury-wise and, and he, he finds his feet, but a pretty glaring strike on his name um, right now. So he'll be, he'll be willing to, to probably sign with someone on the cheap. I hope he is willing to sign with someone for basically pennies on the dollar to, to prove that he can still play at a high level and, and that, you know, because now there's... How old is he, Boggs? I think he's in his mid-20s. Um, but, you know, okay. when these kind of things happen, there's there's rumors. There's rumors of what was he like in the locker room? Was he was he being uh-huh. a problem in there? Or, you know, can he play at the NBL level? Was he, a, you know, so I think, you know, my advice to him was to try and sign with an NBL team for basically nothing if you can because you're already going to get paid by Wollongong for the rest of this season or Illawarra for the rest of this season, sorry, and, and then get back on your feet. But that was an interesting one and and Illawarra have, have slid. Um, they were first at one point. They're now out of the fo- out of the top four. They're fifth or sixth and a big part of it is Dingadell. You know, they're, they're, everyone else has kind of carried their weight and they thought he'd be their guy, their Australian marquee and he's really struggled. So, watch that space with where he ends up but um, – one other thing I wanted to pick your brain on, the, the Boomers, the Australian Boomers squad was announced a while ago. I'll run you through the names in a second. They're going to make their virtual cuts. So we're in, we're in, a, we're in a phase now where there's no training camp oh, to make cuts because of coronavirus. There's obviously guys playing in the NBA. There's probably a few guys that potentially will be deep in the NBA playoffs in Ben Simmons and Joe Ingles. So we're at, we're at 24 right now. Um, I believe they're cutting it to, they're probably going to cut it to 15 in the next couple of weeks. So I'll read these names out and, and perhaps next week you can give me your squad. Um, we'll do some more homework as um, as I got you to do homework yesterday on a few other things we'll get to soon. But this is a squad for the Boomers right now. So we have Dingadell, funnily enough, is in the squad. Dingadell, Aaron Baines, Ryan Brokoff, Xavier Cooks, Mitch Creek, Matthew Delavadova, Dante Exum, Josh Giddy, Chris Goulding, Josh Green, Isaac Humphreys, Joe Ingles, Nick K, Jock Landale, Mitch McCarron, Will Magnay, Will McDowell, White, Thonmaker, Paddy Mills, Brock Modem, Mitch Norton, Duop Reith, Ben Simmons, and Mathis Thibault. So that's our squad. I'll, I'll get you those names so you can give me your squad. But just for everyone out there, that's who we're in the running for. Pretty hard uh, pro as a, as a coach to – I mean, you, that's a lot of tape. There's, there's a few kids playing in the NBA, obviously, then there's – one playing in Serbia, there's one in Turkey, there's one in the NBL. Pretty hard to make a yeah. cut um, via Zoom these days, right, Pro? Yeah, I mean, I'd order a pizza on Zoom, but I don't know about cutting fucking guys on Zoom, especially if you haven't, like, like worked with them in practice and stuff and, and get an idea about where they're at. These training camps are great for Olympic basketball, you know, national teams and stuff. How many bugs? They're at 24 now. Do they have to get to a certain number or do they have to get down to 24? Well, I believe they'll go down to 15 from what I've heard and then they'll wait. So, 24 to 15. Yeah, okay. and they'll go – they'll 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 then have 
three more cuts to make, so you're 12, 12 go, but they'll they'll keep it at 15 because of injuries and and, and there's guys still playing in their season and form. Um, but mm. it is a unique situation we're in with everything going on in the world. We talk about that all the time, but now the, now Brian Gorgian, who's returned as the Boomers coach, his first foray in a number of years, he's got his work cut out for him to pick a team because even chemistry, you're like, how are you going to, you know, you, it's, it's not as easy as you know, Team USA has the luxury of just picking the 12 yeah. best players, right? The other countries don't. You, yeah. you know, Delavadova might work better with this guy. Like, we know Delhi and Baines work together really well, pick and roll, pick and pop, right? But Delhi might not work together right. as well with Isaac Humphreys or whatever it is. So, how, how do you figure all that out on the fly by watching guys within their club? And the other thing is most of these guys, at least playing overseas, and the NBL are, are the one, two, three option on their team. So, now the other question is for a Gorgian, like, shit, who's my 9, 10, 11, 12 role player? Like, how, how do I figure all that out? So, interesting time, but just one for us to watch. So, that'll be some homework for you you um down the track yeah maybe i can get a consulting deal with the australian basketball maybe maybe we do love swearing just not on camera <laughs> maybe all right so a little fun one a little fun one i heard on the bill simmons um podcast so shout out to bill simmons and i d- put a little bit of a twist on it but they were talking about and i found that really interesting so i thought i'd, I'd do it with you price of admission players so so basically you've got your last hundred dollars for an NBA seat. So for your month, for your paycheck for that month, you've got $100 left, you're going to go to an NBA game. So what I decided to do was for each decade since the 80s, we have we basically have a group of guys that would, we would pay to see with our, our last $100. Um, the caveat was that it, it, it didn't have to be body of work, so it didn't have to be over, over their career. It's just for that era. And it could have just been one run from that era. So an example would be Jeremy Lin, right? Or um, or Gilbert Arenas was one that came up. The Jeremy Lin Sanity run, that could be one. Uh, it didn't have to be body of work. So we're going to go through. This will be a little bit of a, a spiel for both of us, but I think it will be really interesting. So I'm going to start first. We'll go with the 1980s. So my price of admission All-NBA team from the 1980s would be at Irvin Magic Johnson, obviously, um, one of the one of the best passers and, and Showtime guys. I had um, George Gervin, um, you know, finger rolls, just the way he scored, very, very smooth. Would love to watch him play. Larry Bird, um, you know, a guy that just fundamentally sound with his jumper, you know, self-explanatory. Dominique Wilkins at the four, self-explanatory, unbelievable dunks. You'd see something crazy athletically every night. And then Kareem at at, at the center spot uh, for the 80s era just because the sky hook, he had a unique tool that you didn't see with a lot of other teams. So you, you would go to an NBA game every week and not see a sky hook and then and then you see 15 of them watching Kareem. So um, that was my five. I had my, my, my tough omissions were Isaiah Thomas with the Pistons and Bernard King with the New York Knicks. What do you got for me in the 80s? With this, folks, the way I thought about it was like in these decades, I want, I think I would probably, especially if someone didn't play all 10 years in that decade, I would rather somebody who finished the decade rather than somebody who didn't finish the decade and was sort of on the downside of their career. And I like players who transcend their position that are fun to watch. So Magic and Jordan in the backcourt, obviously Magic doing what he does and, you know, being 6'10 point guard and, and Jordan just sort of in any era that guy, you, you want to pay to see that guy play, especially how exciting the guy was. You put Jordan in the 80s. So, sorry, one caveat I also said was you can't use the same player in two eras. You can only use him in one era. So, you put him in your 80s. Oh, r- really? Oh, yeah, fuck. Okay. All right. Hold on. <laughs> so, I will I will submit that I'm – all right, fuck it. I'm going to put jo- uh, Magic, Dr. J at the two, Bird at the three. Dominique at the four and Hakeem Olajuwon at the five. Okay. Hold on. 
Fuck. So you can't do two. Shit. I, see, I, I never, I never read the, I don't read fucking, I don't read cal, uh, caloric intake labels on the side of food and I don't <laughs> read fine print when it comes to emails. Just the fine print. Yeah. I, at the five, I'm going to have to go with, uh, with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar then. So I'll go with Magic. I'll go with Dr. J, Bird, Neek, and, and um, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar at the five. Any, any omissions that any notable? Oh, and, yeah, that- yeah. So the notable omission would be now. The, now, does the omissions count as my one pick or? Yes. Yes. We're gonna oh, they do count. So Kevin Mc, Kevin McHale. Yep. And Moses Malone. Yeah, good ones. Good ones. The eighties was a tough one because there was, like you said, there was a lot of people, a lot of players from the seventies, like Magic, Kareem, that were that was kind of their peak, and they were still in their peak in the eighties. But you know, it's it's a tough. Uh, a tough pick, but there was there was about I had about ten players that I could have went with. But um, we'll move on to the nineties. So my nineties team was interesting. I I chose Jordan for my nineties era. Um, so he's my my starting two guard just because I think I think as far as an individual talent in the eighties, he was probably better. Like I think as far as electrifying, getting dropping big numbers. But I think once he figured out winning championships he was a bit more balanced with it all um but that's why i went i went 90s just because he won all those championships my starting point guard funnily enough was tim hardaway 90s era the killer crossover i think he really was you know the pioneer for the killer crossover i mean it was just amazing his ball handling skills for that era was kind of unseen um followed his career in golden state and and miami and really enjoyed watching him play power forwards i had two power forwards for forward spots i had charles barkley for obvious reasons undersized power forward just a brood in there really athletic and and carried the that you know a Phoenix Suns team um, to a finals was really fun to watch. Sean Kemp to me at the power forward spot was just phenomenal um, athletically. I'd pay I'd pay to see him any day of the week, and he was one guy that would would almost guarantee to posterize someone every night. And then my my five was Hakeem. So um, I had a Hakeem in the eighties. He was very fun to watch, similar to Jordan, really massive numbers, highlight dunks. But um, what he did in that predominantly that MVP year where he would just he just bamboozled you know David Robinson. And, and I think Shaq was a rookie that year. Um, what, what he did out of those guys was unbelievable. You know, his footwork, his attention to detail, fade away both shoulders, just really fun to watch. My omissions, I had a fair few. Um, I had Reggie Miller. Um, I loved watching him play just because he was he was a prick. He'd talk shit to the fans. I shot the, the piss out of the ball. Chris Webber. So he was obviously Golden State, Washington, and then a few years in SAC. Um, before their big run he was fun to watch for me and then I had two Euros I had Drazen Petrovic just because he was you know an idol of mine and and was really a pioneer for one of the first Euros uh, Marshall Onus and a few other guys that that actually got minutes in the NBA and um, Sabonis I had Sabonis in there um, Arvidas just because of the way he passed the ball as a big man I I think you know throwing throwing shit behind his shoulder behind his neck behind the back I'd pay I'd pay to watch a guy like that just bamboozle someone with some crazy passes that was my 90s what do you have yeah, so and I love John Stockton, man. I mean, as point guard, I mean, the way he could run a team, the how tough he was, how he fought, how he ran the pick and roll. I, I just thought he was a special player, one of the best point guards of all time. MJ, of course, at two, uh, just the footwork, the winning, the the killer mentality. Just you know, obviously, no one really has to explain that. At the three, I go with Clyde Drexler. Clyde was a special player, like athletically just gifted what he can do. He could really score. He was, you know, one of the, one of the best players in the nineties, 
compared to Jordan early in his career, probably the wrong one to compare to, but he was such a good player, made it to two finals, couldn't really get her over the hump, but I'm a huge Clyde Drexler fan. And then Charles Barkley at the four over Carl Malone, I know, but, you know, Barkley was so entertaining. I mean, he's just tough. He brought it every night. Um, he was, you know, he could go inside, go outside. Uh, you know, one of the more entertaining players to watch. And then Akeem Olajuwon changed the position, you know, played both, dominated on both ends of the floor. You know, big time defensive player, big time offensive player, footwork, won two championships. I mean, just a guy that could carry a whole team with. And then the notable exceptions, geez, there's like a thousand of them, but Karl Malone was probably one of the bigger ones. David Robinson was a guy that I thought about. Scottie Pippen, Shaq, but, you know, Shaq, it was so entertaining to watch, but I think in the 2000s he was a little bit more dominating than the you know than, than in this than in this 10 years. So those are some of the notable guys that I kept off. But yeah, that was my five from the 90s. Man, I miss John Stockton. Yeah, that was one that um, definitely should have been in my admission. So a lunch pal guy that would relate to a lot of people for price admission. I think. All right, so 2000s. This was a hard one for me. The 2000s were a hard one. Um, I was. Played in this era, um, but also watched it as a young a young fellow in college and high school. My 2000s, so starting point guard, I had Steve Nash, obvious reasons. I mean, he, he transitioned the game. Um, a lot of what we see today uh, was was because of Steve Nash, I think. Just the pace, um, the D'Antoni system, that's what everyone's trying to play like now. My two, I had Vince Carter, obvious reasons, highlight, human highlight reel, like just what he did athletically for about a five or six year span there in Toronto. Kind of slowed down a little bit athletically in New Jersey, still had it every now and then, but in Toronto, it was like, man, every night you were like, I'm seeing, I'm getting my money tonight seeing this guy play. Kobe at the three, obvious reasons, one of the greatest of all time, just just his ability to, to turn games on their head by himself. Kevin Garnett, now I had a caveat in this, Minnesota Kevin Garnett. Um, there was the year, I think it was 02, where he just put up phenomenal numbers, carried that team to, to a, I think, a Western Conference final was one of those years. Um, he was very good in Boston. The numbers dropped a bit, but but they had a team that was, you know, tough and rugged. They were pretty balanced with Zerbiak and all those guys, and I really enjoyed watching KG play specifically with that Minnesota team. Um, and then my center was Shaq with the Lakers. That was a caveat with the Lakers, not the Heat. With the Lakers during that three-peat run, I think just his size, strength, athleticism, and as you said, the reason why he wasn't in your 90s team. I enjoyed him with Orlando as well, but just his sheer dominance with the Lakers, man, for those three years was just, you know, the luxury to have Shaq um, on that post to get you a buck. And then have Kobe on the perimeter with shooters was unbelievable. And my admissions were tough on this one. Tim Duncan, I mean, a lot of people wouldn't look at him as a highlight guy, but for me, price of admission was just just giving you a 40 ball without even really knowing that he's done anything highlight worthy at times was why I, I would pay to see him just because he was just frustrating for me to play against, but also frustrating if you were cheering against his team because he just he was just a bucket and fundamentally sound would, would really make mistakes. Gilbert Arenas, the Hibachi year, 06, 07, um, when I was with Milwaukee, he hit a buzzer beater against us. Um, I was right under the basket for that one. I saw it go straight through, boxing out. So he had uh, he definitely made my list for that year. Jason Williams probably could have been late 90s, but I put him in the 2000s as an omission just because – you know, he was a fancy guy that you'd pay to watch. You'd pay to come watch the behind-the-back passes, you know, crossovers, great ball handler. So I enjoyed watching him. And then obviously Alan Iverson was my last one that I had a, as an omission. Um, I wasn't a huge fan of um, Philly or anything like that, but 
you couldn't understate with a guy his size and strength what he did with the 40, 50 balls at times. Um, at times, probably overdid it with, with, with dribbling and whatnot, but um, definitely a guy that if you went to watch an individual, that would be one. What do you got? Yeah, um, I had Steve Nash at the one, Kobe at the two. Uh, Nash, he's just like two-time MVP, like a magician with the ball, like knowing where and when to give it to players. I mean, was one of the best shooters of all time, you know, before Steph got in the league and got going, just because he did such a big time, you know, shooting numbers, mostly off the dribble, mostly with defenders draped all over him and just what he can do. I, I just, I thought he was one of the most entertaining players I've ever seen. Kobe, for obvious reasons, the guy was just a, you know, he brought it every night and just one of the most talented scorers you'd ever, you know, you'd ever want to come across. I had, you know, some changes that I made to this, uh, Tracy McGrady at the three. Uh, I thought T-Mac was one of the most explosive scorers that I've ever seen, one of the most skilled players that I've ever seen, you know, be able to just, you know, just athletic and handle the ball, could score all over the floor. I thought he was, you know, really, really just a great player to watch. I'm going to go with Dirk Nowitzki at the four. Dirk just, I'm just a big fan of shooters, man. Seven foot, can shoot, can carry a team. You know, not many players that could carry, carry a team. And I thought that he was one of the best players I've ever seen as far as a skilled side on the offensive side of the ball. And especially early 2000s where he's, he was more limber and more athletic than he was at the end. But I thought he was really good. And, you know, I, I just kept on going back and forth. Duncan, Garnett, what have you. But I just thought, uh, I thought Dirk at the fours, you know, I watched him play once, you know, watch him against Boston. He was ridiculous early in his career and you know he's a good one and then the at the five i was gonna go with garnett but i'm gonna go with shaq just shaq's just too good uh dominating force and he's a guy that you definitely want to pay to see he's you know a guy that doesn't come around he's a once in a generation player and you know what he could do on both ends of the floor and then obviously notable garnett duncan Allen iverson LeBron, but LeBron only played six seasons in the 2000s, and I know he won an MVP and all, but, you know, obviously I think it, I wanted to use him in the next. So those are some of the notable guys that I left off. So that was it. Yeah, good ones. Good one. I, did, I had the same debate with um, with LeBron. Um, there's a few guys like that. So Dirk's the same for me. I, I went in, in this era, which I'll go through now. So my 2010s, Steph Curry starting, obviously, at the point guard position. LeBron's my two. KD. Oklahoma City KD specifically, even though Golden State the championships or not, but but he was a big problem in OKC and was very enjoyable. I had Blake Griffin at my four um, as far as price of admission, just because the athletic. You know, I like having Dunkers at my four, as you've noticed, Wilkins and Sean Kemp and whatnot. He was just a guy. You know that that Lob City run didn't win much or didn't bring much in the in the realm of trophies but um as far as getting your money's worth by seeing him absolutely shit on someone on a dunk <laughs> that, that's worth the price yeah, of admission sure. itself and then my five i had anthony davis i had as my five now i could probably you know probably change that for dirk at the five looking at it now um i had some omissions i had the dirk finals run specifically i mean dirk had a fantastic career but that finals run um what he did taking a, that Dallas team to even get to the finals and then win a championship against the, the the big three in Miami. That was off his own back and and just the run that he had 
they, they just had no answer for him in the finals. It was just so enjoyable to watch the big three that was touted as as, as everything and anything. A kid, you know, a kid from seven footer from Germany that was just they're putting him on the elbow. He's driving by Haslam. He's shooting fadeaways. And I watched a few of those clips actually while I was researching this. And I urge anyone to, to, that loves basketball to go and watch that finals run. Someone's put basically all of Dirk's big buckets from that final series on a on a you know 10 15 minute clip on YouTube and and some amazing shots that he did. late shot clock. You know the standard Dirk pump fake pump fake a little shoulder into you fade away shots that just should never have have, have even hit the rim were, were just all net and that was an amazing run and the other two omissions I had Chris Paul uh, obviously one of the, the greatest point guards to play and, and everything that he's done even though he hasn't won a, a championship he had to be mentioned and then I had Clay Thompson as well just because of in the 2010 era the Splash Brothers and just his ability to to nonchalantly drop 60 on you with 10 threes I think is is someone I would pay to watch what do you got yeah so Thank God you told me about this rule that we can't use multiple guys because, like, I <laughs> literally mirrored it. I, yeah, I literally mirrored it from, you know, today's game to before. But, man, it's tough. So, I'm going to go because I, I originally went Steph and Harden at the 1-2. I'm going to probably change that to Dwayne Wade and Westbrook, you know, because of the fact you can't reuse. So, I, I, I want to use those two guys. I mean – you know, D Wade with his run in Miami, you know, starting in like 11 and on. You know, I, I know he wasn't really relevant later in the 2010s, but, you know, early on, he was really good. He was the best player, in, you know, on a championship team and you're just electrifying. So I'm going to put him, Westbrook, another thing, guy just came at you and never stops attacking, you know, triple double machine and uh, just, just sort of took the league by storm. So those two guys for sure. Um, you know, with that, and then Kawhi Leonard, uh, Kawhi at the three, uh, obviously, you know, championship, just simple, you know, big run with the Spurs and, and then obviously what he did with, uh, with Toronto. So I'm going to put him at the three. Yeah. Uh, fuck it. I'll just go small. I'll go LeBron at the four and then Chris, Chris Bosch at the five. Chris Bosch. And, you know, I probably could have picked somebody better. No, you know what? Homage to Tim Duncan. We'll put Duncan at the five, and Bosch could be a notable uh, absence from the team. So let's go with D. Wade, Westbrook, uh, Kawhi, LeBron, and uh, Duncan. That's my five. Not bad. I mean, I didn't, I didn't even have Bosch at all. So it goes to goes to show you how hard this is. Yeah, to do, man. neither do I now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A- I forgot this. This rule is good. I, I like this rule. I, Shit, I should have paid attention more. But so I put Bosch as a notable, uh, notable off. Yep. You know because I got what's his name? I got um, you know I got another guy at the five. I'm having I'm having a senior moment. So let me see. So we go Westbrook, uh, D Wade, Westbrook, LeBron, Kawhi, uh, Kawhi, LeBron, and at the five, Duncan. Yeah. So my notable guys that are off would probably be Bosch. You know, another guy is Paul George and Griffin. Probably the three guys that I left off. Yeah. Yeah, Paul George is a good one as well, but yeah, I just didn't have him in that mix. I I switched my now a little bit from from the names you just mentioned. So for my my today is I got Westbrook as my starting point guard, triple double every night, um, and we'll get into that a little bit in a second. Um, Luka Doncic is my two. I had Zion at my three. Now I had Kawhi initially, but I thought you know what, Kawhi's there's just too many games missed for me, so. 
I'd risk buying that ticket and he wouldn't play. <laughs> so I had to swap him out. I put Zion and Giannis as my as my three, four. And then I had Jokic as my five just because, and, and it's kind of the opposite of what I do with my four men. He's not that athletic dunking guy, but he's just one of those guys that looks like, you know, like I've said many a times, a guy you drink with at the pub and just drops a 40 ball on you at a high clip shooting, you know, rainbow threes on you and one-footed disrespectful looking shots and and pass the ball like like any you know the all-time great big men passes so um i really enjoy watching him and then my notable exemptions joel Embiid was my other five that i was tossing up with Jokic as of today um i had dame lillard Kawhi leonard was was a exemption um and um uh, james harden Oof. That's pretty good, man. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, today's today's a tough one to do. Um, it just depends what direction you want to go, and um, just one of those things. What do you got for now? We'll go with uh, Steph at the one, Doncic at the two, James Harden at the three, KD at the four, and Jokic at the five. Dame Lillard, probably a, a notable exception. Uh, Jason Tatum, notable exception. I'm probably overrating that. Bradley Bale is a notable exception. Yeah, Bill for so that's sure. That's where I'm going to go with the one of five. Yeah, Bale's having a hell of a year. Yeah, KD. Now, I see KD's injuries and whatnot um, kind of put, made me put him in the tens and, and just the OKC run. I mean, I think KD in any, any era, and that's what makes this so hard. You can put a lot of these guys in and change them, but I, I just thought his, you know, his peak in, in, yeah. in OKC was was phenomenal. Probably should have switched out Kawhi and, and Durant, you know, for the – you know, for the 2010 and now, but yeah, for sure. That's why I'm, I'm fucking terrible at picking these teams, the, like all NBA teams. Cause all of these guys are going to fucking average two and two the rest of the season and their careers <laughs> because I put them on my fucking team because I'm Eddie Mush. Yeah, but it's, look, it's a fun thing to do. That's why I brought it up. I think it's just looking back to NBA history. Obviously, you need to know the game a little bit to an extent other than just Googling names um, and what you enjoy watching. That's why I had some random ones like Tim Hardaway and Jason Williams. I didn't just go, you know, the obvious ones at times. But yeah, it was an interesting thing that Bill Simmons did, so I enjoyed it. And for everyone listening, give us your thoughts. I mean, there's a lot of people that'll get fired up about these lists and uh, for whatever reason and, and try to do them yourself. They're hard to do. They're really hard to do. Like five players from an era... Uh, from a decade era is 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 really really hard to pick and, and it all depends on what what appeals to you as a fan you know there'll be there might be some of these people that played high school basketball that love the fundamentals guy that set a good screen so then i might be in their uh i might be in their all-time team from a decade it's hard man it ain't it ain't, it ain't easy especially if you can't use guys multiple errors you got to figure out how many years they played in that you know and especially like the players that only played the bot like the bottom half of like like the bottom four years of one, you know, one ten, one one decade, and they only played maybe four or five years in the in the first on the next decade. Where other players, sometimes you're going to leave some players out just because of that, and then some top players will be get lucky and they could play the whole decade and dominate. And they're obvious choices, so yeah, it's a tough one, man. Well, everyone out there, let us know your thoughts on socials. Let us know which ones we completely messed up and and which ones we didn't. I've got a new segment for you, pro. Sure. Production bosses have come to me with this, and I think it's a decent one. We're going to call it. It's going to be a stat segment. So basically, we're going to, during the week or two, we're going to see stats that we think are either stupidly useless or wonderfully useful. So here's a stat that I found. I'm going to read it to you, and you tell me, wonderfully useful. So write this down with your, your old brain. Wonderfully useful or stupidly useless. Russell Westbrook is now 132 and 44 wins and losses when he gets a triple-double. So it's a 75% winning percentage. If you say it's empty stats, you are wrong. Is that a useful stat or is it, you know, stupidly useless? I think it's useless because 
obviously if a guy's going to get a triple double, you're probably going to he's probably going to be put like like players. You got to see what type of team he played for, how good they were. Was he putting on triple doubles on losing teams? Like what's more valuable as a triple double? I think it's useless to be honest. I don't care. I don't care if he scores a triple double or not. It, it all depends if he's going to be putting myself putting himself in a position to win. So, and it depends on what team he plays for. So, I think it's useless on that end. What's your thoughts? I disagree with you. So, okay, there's a lot of people out there. Look, some of these have been stat padded in his career. There's been notable highlights of of Adams and and whoever else boxing out and letting the ball bounce four times for Russ to get triple double. Totally get that. But there is some sentiment around. Russell Westbrook just chasing triple doubles, right? Um, and you can argue that when he misses them, they lose because he's over over chasing them. But I think that's that to me is useful because it somewhat solidifies the point of when he does get those triple doubles, whether he's chasing them or not, they win three out of four games. So I think it takes away a little bit from that sentiment of of um, well, he gets a triple double, but they suck. Because I thought that too. I thought I wouldn't have thought he was seventy five percent winning percentage with a triple double. Just just based on, especially playing with Washington, it feels like he's had one every game this season, and and their record is below five hundred. But I find that a useful stat because it, it turns down that rhetoric around um, whenever he gets one, there a win or loss doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Different takes. I can see it that way. Yeah. No, you disagreed with me. Don't don't try to come on my bandwagon now. Oh no, I ain't I come back to that shit. You're right. I'm a fucking moron anyway. But I'm just saying I can see it. I can see what you're saying. But like, yeah. To tell you the truth, I don't really care. Like, like I don't care when they come up in those fucking fucking stats on the ESPN telecast or whatever. Like, you know, he's two hundred and twenty and twelve on a Saturday, second Second Saturday on a fucking leap year, like and that's some my point. shit. You're just like, come on, man. That's my point yeah. around that. They are the stupidly useless ones. So we'll we'll pick one, that, one or two that we see during the week, and we'll debate whether they're. But I thought that one was useful to me anyway. I could be wrong, but yeah. We, if we, if you see those ones, fans out there, send us through some absolutely stupid ones, absolutely great ones that you think solidify something, and, and we'll discuss them. But I think um, it's just a good talking point to see because some of these talking heads do come up with, like we said, the second Saturday of every month, this guy gets twenty rebounds, first time in NBA history. Fantastic. Fact or fake news? Let's rock. All right. Let's see, Bogues. After not mentioning Monty Williams and Coach of the Year, wanting to send Kevin Porter to Siberia and chastising Mo Bamba, and now is putting up Carl Malone-like numbers, Crow's job is in jeopardy. Oh, man. Yeah, it's a, t- it's a tough Please one. Please tell me fucking it is. Just to put me out of my fucking misery. Like I'm old fucking yellow where you just got to put a shotgun in my head. Just fucking end it, Bogues. You can get a homeless person on the fucking street will be better than me without a lisp like this. That's what makes it. That's Go ahead, what, that's man. what makes just the production. We'll, we'll, we'll say fake news. Uh, it's not in jeopardy. Fuck. Um, if we're paying you, it'd be a different story. But we did, we did, we did balls up massively. Um, as was said, Monty Williams definitely coached the year discussion and Leading into this one, I wanted to discuss just, I think, the season that the Phoenix Suns are having, um, just quietly achieving what they're achieving. It doesn't get much respect, and that we proved that last week, right? We proved that we're not, we're not giving them the respect they're due. Is, is that because they haven't won in the playoffs yet? They're still unproven. I'm still not sold on them. I'm still not sold on them. I don't know why. Um, I'm just not. I don't think they have enough to get through a grueling playoff series. I love them. I love the way they play. I think they're well-balanced. They're well-coached. But I'm just – I don't know what it is, Pro. I'm just not sold. Yeah, it all depends on the matchup. And there are a few ma- a few sort of situations like that in the Western Conference where, like, on a certain team, if, like, you know, if you play one team, then you have to, like – or you have to match up with Dallas. You know, like, Dallas could fucking hammer them if they're healthy. You know, but if they have to play – you know, if they have to play someone like the Lakers 
the way the Lakers are playing, you're like, ah, oh, they might have a real chance on, on a first round matchup. But I agree. I'll go back to the question first. I'm hoping it's I'm hoping it's fucking you know it's fact, but I'm probably gonna say since I'm not getting paid and you know and you like fucking kicking me in the nuts every week, I'd probably say it's fake news. But what I would say is for people just to keep on hammering me on social media about mistakes that I make because I'm going to make them because I'm a fucking moron when it comes to a lot of the stuff that I say. So we'll continue that. All right. The NBA will continue Zoom interviews to shield its players and coaches from media after the pandemic is over and everything opens up 100%. I'd like that to be fact, but it'll be fake news. I'd also like to include that they could do visit strip clubs via Zoom as well. <laughs> If that's possible. <laughs> but um, I hate it. I don't love it. But it, it has been interesting because it does open up access to other countries of people that can't actually be there. We know how much the NBA loves to open doors for China. So this could be something they potentially keep in play. I think fake news, but I think the, the twist I would say is I think it'll be a mix. I think it'll be a mix moving forward. I think there'll be a potential where you'll still do your, your live interviews when everything's back open, but there, there will be a player grab to do Zoom interviews with international media and interstate media. Yeah, I think it's going to be fact. I think they're going to keep it. Now, I think it might be, they might get to be an uproar a little bit in the media where they want to be there live and they want more access to players, but Obviously, a pandemic, even when you start opening up, I think that they're going to be cautious with that. But I think they like the fact that I think players like it, too. Like, you know, there's not I mean, they control when it starts. They control when it ends. There's not like reporters in their locker room lingering around that get stuff like they you know, basically go to your Zoom and then you get off of it. You think no pandemic, they'll, they'll, this will continue? I think it will continue, Bogues. I do. I think because I think players like it so much, and you know how the NBA is with players. Like they sort of cave when it comes to stuff that they like. Like I think that they'll like that. Like I think they control a lot more. Look, like I think it'll be a lot harder for Kevin Love to do what he did in a Zoom situation than doing it live, where you could just shut the Zoom off if you know if there if people are grumbling about him not taking questions about quitting on his team. But like, if he's got a media scrum around him, it'll be a lot harder to, to, to you know, to hide. So I think they will keep it. Now they might change it where like if there's media complaining about it enough. But I think they're gonna, I think they're gonna keep it for a while. I do, you know, and, and most of it's if I do these these media. There's some media people that think they're bigger rock stars and players. This will, if this happens, they will lose their shit. It would be, I would, yeah. and I would love it. I would grab a bag of popcorn and watch because they would. There's some dudes that come in our locker rooms that are boys with players and dapping them up and giving yeah. them a hug, and it would be fucking hilarious. I would, I would love it. I don't think it'll happen based on that. I think it'll, it'll save the NBA money because you could just keep those, you could just keep the media people at home and be like, watch it on TV, and then here's your Zoom link. <laughs> we don't have to give you accreditation. Yeah, here's your Zoom link. We get another yeah. hundred seats for fans to make money from. But it, I don't. I, that's why I don't see it happening. They would absolutely lose their shit. I'm sure they've got some sort of union too, probably these days, and they'd probably be protesting outside with some signs. <laughs> it would be great. I, I want, I want to see it based on that. I just don't think it'll happen. I can see that. Okay. Okay, I disagree, but I could, you know, I could see them having a big uproar about it. That's what I'm saying. It will change quickly, but I think that they will keep it. I think in the next couple of years they'll keep it, which means they'll probably go right back tomorrow to having a lot of people, you know, in, in their locker rooms. But like, no, I, I do think that they'll keep it for a while, just because it shields them from a lot of shit. Like they they control it a lot more than they would a regular, you know, press conference, even though they do have some control over it. But we'll see. 
We'll see. Last but certainly not least on my end, I know you have one question, folks, you're going to add, but the Minnesota Timberwolves will continue to step on the gas and win games, even though it jeopardizes losing their pick to Golden State, getting out of the top three. Do you think that's fact or fake news? Oh, man. I don't, what, what, do you know the actual breakdown? Yeah, so right now, Bogues, Houston's got the worst record in the league. They're 16 and 47. Uh, Orlando and Detroit have 19 wins apiece. They're 19 and 44. And Minnesota right now is 20 and 44. So they're one game out. They got to be in the top three to keep their pick. So right now, there's one game separating them from literally from the second worst record in the league. I don't think they're going to catch Houston. Houston's got, I think they're like three and a half. Yeah, with yeah, they're three and a half games over right now, so that's where we're, that's where we lie. I think the uh, oh, so Minnesota will continue to step on the gas. I think fake news. They they have to they have to turn it back. They got to protect that top three pick, and they're right there. I mean, you get an extra win, even though I, I hate it. I don't like it. I don't like tanking. I think it should be incentivized in, in the reverse. But I think. They'd be idiots to, to lose out on that pick. Um, they do have a new coach. He's doing a very good job. They've, they've played much better since he's got there. But um, I think you got to make a business decision and um, say that Edwards fell and slipped and can't play for the next 10 games and a few other towns. Something happened there. We've got to play our G League guys. And we're, we're trying to win, but we've got to play our G League guys. <laughs> yeah, I could see a, a big promotion from about six players. They're going to graduate from private soreness to general soreness quickly. And they're going to be out of the lineup because – Look, I think Minnesota has a chance to be decent where this year, tank it, get in the top three, get your pick. I don't think that pick's going to be great. I've watched some of the top guys. It'll be a good pick regardless. And then next year, get Golden State gets it unprotected. Get to like, right now they're at 20 wins. So say they could win 20. So they got, let me see, eight games to go. They could say they go 22 and 50. They get the top three pick. I really think with the pick, with everybody healthy, Towns playing a full season. I'm not a huge Russell fan, but he's still talented. And I think they're young guys that are playing pretty well, plus the pick. And then they can win. I think they could win 35, you know, 30 to 35 games next year. And then Golden State gets that pick at like, I don't know what that would be, 17. Because now, look, the, the trade wasn't great with, with – I'm not a big fan of Russell to give up what you gave up. But you got him. You know, I think that if you give up the pick now, and they're going to win regardless next year. They're going to be much better. I think with the, you know, with the coaching change, you know, and then the players, you know, developing, and then the, the, the young guys sort of taking a jump, I think they're going to be pretty good. So why not get the pick this year, end up being pretty good next year, and then, and then Golden State gets like the seventeenth pick. You don't want you don't want to give up the third pick, and then you know you give up the third pick, and then you have to you know then you're at thirty five wins next year without that pick this year. So I think that they should probably like again nine or ten people press conference. You know they've been they've been elevated from you know private soreness to general soreness, and then just like just let the thing go, and they get like the second or third pick. Or they all are in the COVID protocol for 10 days. That would be the easy way out as well. Yes. They they could hang out with Porter Jr. Can Russell and Edwards play together now? I mean, Edwards has come along much quicker than they thought, I I would guess. Can those two play together? Can Russell and Edwards play together? Yeah. 
Yeah, I think I think they could play great together. You think? Edward starting and Russell coming off the bench. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I think they definitely can play together. Yeah, because yeah. the way I see it, you got those two guys that need the ball. Edwards needs the ball, and then you got Towns in there as well. We know if he doesn't get a few touches, you know, a few trips down, he's going to lose his shit. So I think it's a good balance to have Edwards and Towns with some role players. Like I think Rubio's done a good job with being that role player for him late in the season. But the elephant in the room once again is is Russell. I think he's the odd man out. Yeah, I mean, look, like he's not going anywhere. That contract is pretty big. So if you bring him off the bench, you give him starters minutes, bring but bring him off the bench. And then you have like Rubio, Edwards, Beasley, Towns. You get a you know, top three pick. Say that top three pick, I don't know, maybe it gets you the, the guard from Gonzaga. So maybe, I don't know, like, and he's like a, he's sort of like a, a Jamal Murray type. Suggs, I think the kid's name is. I forgot the kid's name. But so like, that's a pretty good lineup. And then you got D'Angelo Russell. They could get you 19 or 20 for sure. I mean, he is a scorer. He can get you, like, I think those guys, that, you know, are really good in your second unit. Because I think that a lot of teams are really missing that 19, 20 point a game guy coming off the bench to give the second unit a bunch. And then you can let him close games if you want, but I think he's better served coming off the bench, gives that second unit a, you know, you know, you could put him with like a Koji, you could put him with Vanderbilt, you could put him with Nas Reed. I think that's better served coming off the bench and that's okay. You just... Jordan Clarkson. I mean, he's a prime example. Like he... Yeah. He was, you know, early on wanted to be that starter and was fighting for that and, and then finally bought into being a bench guy. Less responsibility as far as starting games, a defensive end, all that kind of stuff. Your role is come in and get us buckets. I think I, I agree um, with Russell. If he buys into it, that's the question. I don't, I don't, I don't see him buying into a bench role um, that easily. Yeah, I think he's been coming off the bench, though, in the last few games, Bogues, if I'm not mistaken. I haven't watched Minnesota in a couple of weeks. But I think he, like, watching the box scores and stuff, I think he does come off the bench. He's been coming off the bench. With a healthy preseason, you know, uh, he's been in and out of the lineup with injuries and what COVID and all that shit. So, I think with a proper preseason where he feels he's 100% healthy, I, I just feel like that's going to be a hard conversation for him to take. Yeah, um, for sure. Making 25. But, I mean, you know, like I said, if you came to me and – you know, you're, you're making that money and we're paying you all this money as a as a franchise guy, but we want you to come off the bench and just get buckets. I mean, it's not the worst role in the world if you buy into it. No, and then, you know, he makes 30 next year. He's making 26 years. He makes 30 next year and 31-3 and 22-23. I've got one for you. Okay, so Kevin, Kevin Love will finish his contract in the NBA on a roster. <sighs> all right, so he's going to finish this original contract, the one that – He's, He's making finish, thirty million a year. So he on. needs to be in the NBA on a roster until two thousand and twenty-three. Actucally, not just on a roster, but actually playing. And whether he's bought out, moved on, stretched, whatever it is, he's going to be playing in the NBA um, throughout this contract. So he's not yeah. going to, he's not going to be stretched and sent home, or bought out and sent home and not re-signed. So I'm saying there's, there's a chance that he could. Just, yeah, yeah. No, I think he. I I think it's fake news. I think he'll. Well, I'm sorry. It's fact. Because I think he will finish on an NBA roster. He will be stretched out. It's a stretch out or bought out, a hundred percent. No, I don't think anybody's trading for that contract. Although, worst contracts. Hey, John Wall's contract got traded, so any contract could get traded. But in my opinion, I think he gets bought out or stretched out, and then he he gets picked up by an NBA team, and he'll play for at least two more years. He'll get he'll get signed by a good team, you know, for short money for either minimum or partial mid-level exception, and then he'll he'll play for a couple more years at least. 
and then figure it out. But I, I think he ends up on an NBA roster. What do, you, what do you think? I think he hangs around. I don't think it'll be as easy as we all think. I think um, if you're a championship team or a team, you know, if you're a young team, you're not taking him based on his track record of what he's done the last couple of years. Um, you're not going to have does that. Da- does Dallas take him? Dallas take him? Oh, I'd love to see him with Rick. That'd be hilarious. But yeah, I mean, he'd be a decent fit. I mean, Pozingas in and out of the lineup, you can put Love at the 4-5 with Porzingis potentially. Um, I just think it'd have to be a perfect fit. If you're a championship team that has a decent culture that's trying to win, you probably even question it to an extent as well just because of, you know, if he has one of those mental health days where he just loses his shit, you know, uh, that's that's what I'm looking at. But I think he will, but I don't think it's as, I don't think it's 100%. Okay, I got you. All right, we'll move on to Q&As. I've got a few this week, so... Hey, Bogues Pro, listening to your podcast, it seems the locker room of an NBA team is very individual. The concept of team is so prevalent in Australian sporting teams, it just doesn't seem to resonate the same way in the NBA. How do you then execute as a team in game time? How do the NBA teams build chemistry and a bond? Is it just through winning that it seems to grow? I find it very business-like when in reality, teams are made up of real people with emotions, friendships, et cetera, et cetera. That's from Mark. What are your thoughts on that? So basically how they build chemistry and bond, I, to I be mean, honest with you, I think- just because it's so individual. I mean, he's basically saying it's- from from the eye from his eyes, it's it's very individual. It's very it's, it's not as team structured and based. And basically, the only way you build camaraderie and, and chemistry is if your team's winning. Because if you don't, everyone kind of goes their own way. I do agree with that to a certain degree. I think I think winning obviously helps. I think the time players are getting different, man. Like it used to be that a lot of players hung out with each other. You know, a lot of the teams, you know, teams just they hung out. Now with social media, video games, you know. You know, people traveling with you know with players traveling with people, and they just hang out with them. That it is a little bit more individualized, depending on the team. I think the winning helps. I do think losing helps too, folks. Like if everything stays together and they go through some tough times, I think that there are strong bonds that are that are sort of made through you know through fighting through adversity a little bit, losing, coming up short. I think that people dig in now these days. People aren't digging in like they used to, but I still think that through adversity, through the time they spend, you know, they, they tend to bond a little bit. Players are getting more and more individualized and more and more, you know, individual rather than team. But I, I do think through, you know, adversity, I, I still think that those strong bonds are built, you know, because they've went through a lot together. They went through those wars together. They went through, you know, struggling together. But you know, it, times are changing, and, and, and I don't think that it will be like that for much longer. But I think for now, it's still, you know, I, I still think it, you know, going through tough times really helps you sort of build that bond. What do you think, both? I think there's a, there's a different point to it. I think it, um, it is, it is very individual uh, as far as from the Australian sporting landscape, what we see with football clubs and whatnot, the players that are together all day, every day, nonstop, barbecues, hanging out, dinners. The NBA is much more individual outside of uh, team-structured activities. So it can it can be, cause a little bit of an issue. Um, as I've mentioned before, that's why the Golden State Warriors were so good. We, we actually hung out together off the floor and got to know each other. And, and that makes a big difference knowing that, you know, a guy might be having issues away from the court and that's why he's a bit, you know, a bit, a bit angry with things or whatever. No, knowing your teammate, knowing what's going on, knowing their family, knowing their kids and situation and, oh, they've got two kids, maybe you didn't get any sleep, whatever it is, right? I think that's important to an extent. Um, and that's any group setting, not just basketball teams, but businesses, team sports, 
support if you're a manager of, of employees. So I think that's lacking in the NBA and that's just something you got to navigate. I think forcing it to an extent, like coaches that try to force that by doing you know team activities can sometimes work, but it can have the opposite effect because um, guys don't want to do it. But I think generally when you're recruiting, you got to recruit star players, but there's just not as much of an emphasis when recruiting players in the NBA um, looking into how they are as a person because that can affect your locker room. You can you can sign a max guy that averages 20 a night, 30 a night, but if you sign a douchebag that's doing that, they can just light your, your locker room on fire and your five-year growth, then, then you as the GM and you as a coach are going to get fired. So I think that's underrated. I think um, there are teams that look at it, San Antonio, Miami, um, but most teams – you know, nine times out of 10, they'll hire that max guy regardless of the baggage. Yeah, you have to be able to hold the line. And NBA teams really have a hard time doing that where they hold the line for higher, you know, for signing like a player that might help them statistically, but won't fit into their locker room. Um, you know, I do. I remember when you guys, when you and Harrison came to Dallas, I liked the thing that you guys did. I never saw that before where we would go out to dinner and everybody, including staff, would have to put their cell phones in a bucket or basket. And then the first person to pull their cell phone out to look at it basically paid for the whole dinner when those dinners weren't cheap. But I, I like the idea of, you know, people have to talk and they can't be on their phones the whole time and sort of trying to bond you know, and I think those situations are a lot better when people just go out to eat and they talk, you know, regardless of how the team's doing, good or bad, and they're not on their phones the whole time and just having dinner and leaving. But I really like that aspect of it. First of all, I wasn't paying for a fucking $800 dinner. Second of all, um, you know, I think it's it just the, the little things like that really, I think, really help the team bonding. I do agree with that. I, I think spending the time on the road like that really helps. And it didn't matter if the team was winning, losing, or what have you. What was amazing about that phone thing was NBA players making $10 million a year. One thing, it'd be a competitive thing, but it'd also be like, I don't want to pay for, for dinner. So it actually worked. Um, we'd never rarely have a guy touching their phone till all the meals came out. But the minute that dessert came out, it was like the phones were <laughs> the phones were, were taken. But um, it was it was an interesting exercise. And yeah, we used to do some random shit sometimes. Like we knew, we knew a couple of guys on the team that had – had wives that if that phone wasn't answered after the second ring that they'd be in some shit so we'd get um we'd try to get someone to go to a you know a phone around the corner or try to get someone to, f- to call their phone that wasn't at the dinner <laughs> so they'd see their yeah yeah, see yeah, their, yeah for sure see their phone light up and be like holy shit holy shit holy shit and then they pick it up and just be like i actually had a teammate of mine pick his phone up five minutes into the into the uh the dinner and just be like yep <laughs> it's, on, it's on me tonight fuck it like i need to pick up my phone up so yeah a fun activity, that's for sure. I remember calling some asshole from my fucking iWatch without them looking and just to see yeah. if they were going to pick it up or not. 100%. Yeah, pricked it and opened it. <laughs> yeah, it was fucking great. I felt like James Bond. First time ever, right? Huh, yeah, first time for everything. Bogues and Pro, I love the show. Rhymes in brackets. I did rhyme. Good job. When you're watching basketball with your family or non-athlete friends, do you focus on different aspects of the game compared to others? Some athletes have mentioned we average punters or average people don't understand basketball. Just trying to figure out what we are missing. Really enjoy the podcast. Kind regards, Ben Strahan or Strachan. So however that's pronounced, I'm not too sure if it's a silent C, but basically asking how we watch basketball. I mean, for me, that was when I was in season and, and playing and in Korea, um, I almost didn't want to watch basketball too much because I overanalyzed it all and I'd, I'd see different things. 
I think now I do the same thing, but I can also tune out sometimes and just try to try to watch. But look, I'll watch. I won't just watch the guy with the ball. I'll watch what's going on off the ball. I'll watch what their big man does, um, you know, as far as screening, what the kind of action is, what adjustments coaches make, rotations. I, I do like the chess game within the game. That I'm big on that. And that's not just with basketball. It's with poker. It's with anything I'm doing. There's always a game within the game. And that's what I like watching. And what I, I guess what, what players mean by people that don't understand basketball, you know, without being disrespectful, but there's, there's, a, there's a lot of fans, even journalists and media people that will just look at a box box score and say, you know, player X had 30 and 10, that was great. And, and this guy who played 30 minutes only had five and five, you know, why is he playing so many minutes or whatever it is? That's when guys get frustrated because there are guys on teams that play a really valuable role that sometimes just don't show up on a stat sheet. Um, and there's, there's numerous amounts of those guys around the league, not just in basketball, but in numerous sports. And I think that's where where uh where players get frustrated and label journalists or fans you don't understand basketball you don't understand what we understand and, and that's what they're referring to it might be setting the right screens for your teammate it might make be making the right swing swing pass which you don't get an assist for all those kind of things matter and, and i think that's what people refer to so don't always look at the guy dribbling 15 times getting the bucket or the box score because it can be very very deceiving um but what are your thoughts on that pro yeah, folks, the game is so different these days, and it, and it's not in a good way to me to watch. You know, first of all, my wife hates watching games with me because I always rewind, rewind, rewind anyway, especially when I was working for Kobe. So she stopped watching games with me altogether. I mean, it just continuously rewind and stop <laughs> and pause. But, like, now I, I actually tweet these things out now, and you know, just to sort of something to do during games. Like, I like the simple plays. Like, I like – Actually, because so many players travel from the wing, you know, catch and goes because they, they split their feet. Or step like out I, of bounds. I like watching. Yeah, or step out of bounds. Yeah, out of bounds is ridiculous. It's out, it's unbelievable. Out of bounds. You've got 27 fucking coaches on the, you know, trying to fight over each other, taking credit for all the players' success that not one of them could fucking teach a guy not to step out of bounds or how to catch and go without traveling. And like a simple like catch and goes with no travel finish or – you know, or a, a good read in a pick and roll or a cut off the ball or a good defensive, you know, possession. Like those are the things that I like to look for since it doesn't happen. Like, because most of the game is dribble, 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 you know, step side, step, step back, three point shot with eight people and, you know, you know, fucking draped all over you. There aren't a lot of those great plays, simple plays made in a game anymore. Like they used to, but I like to find the simple plays, the the good screens, the cuts off the ball, the lob pass where, you know, the guard wait on the pick and roll, you know, had that just waited that extra second for that roller to get behind his man to be able to throw the lob. The high low pass, the the dribble handoff and the guy catching off the handoff gives it to the person who handed off to him. Like little plays like that and trying to just find little things to talk to players about you know, about being more simple and just sort of helping the team without dominating the ball. Like, I hate ball domination. I don't hate it with, like, guys like a Luka Doncic or a Steph Curry because those guys are brilliant with the ball in their hands. But, like, I, I like the simple the simple plays. And that's – I like I like rewinding, you know, putting that 10-second tweet out, explaining it and throwing it out there for people who follow me. But like I like I like the simple plays to to watch during games for sure. That don't, like you said the the actions and the I don't like plays. I don't like X's and O's. I think you know I don't like things like that. I'm just not smart enough to pick up on most of it. But I like those plays that I, you could teach players to do just to win those small winning plays that add up over over a course of a game. 
Yeah, and I've ran into a few of your clips. So at Hoop Consultants on Instagram and Twitter, Pro will post those 10, 15-second clips of just some unique, simple plays. I think you've labelled it as, as the simple basketball play, and I think they're um, they're really enjoyable, especially for, for young players trying to up and come to, to high school or college or even a professional league somewhere that you, you don't need to be just constantly trying to cross someone over four times before you shoot. The, yeah. There are, you know, I think, um, what's his name? Is it Bruce Brown with, with Brooklyn? I think he's, is, is that his name? The two guy, two, two three man? Bruce, Bruce Brown. Yeah, he's yeah. he's a prime example. He's playing with a bunch of superstars and he's he's niched out a really valuable role for them, I've noticed. And he, he he's constantly cutting. He gets a lot of offensive rebounds from the guard spot. Because he knows, he knows, look, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna get the ball most times, most possessions. Um everyone's eyes are looking at KD and Kyrie and even Blake Griffin to an extent and, and, and whatnot, Joe Harris shooting the ball where he, he sneaks in, you know, 10, 12 points just from from cutting, as soon as guys turn their head to look, oh, where's KD at? He's behind your head. He gets a layup. And if you watch their games, he does a phenomenal job of that. Bruce Brown, Terrence Mann from the Clippers, Pat Connaughton from Milwaukee. Like those just are a few guys that that are really good at just sort of, you know, just playing hard and finding sort of those little niche, you know, little nooks in the court to figure some figure things out and they're they're fun to watch. I mean, there's a bunch of them across the league. Don't get me wrong. Those are only a few that I like to watch. Like even Duncan Robinson, who, you know, who shoots the three, doesn't do a lot more than that, but he keep continuously moves and, you know, just plays hard and, you know, but those, I, I love Brown. I love man. Uh, they're both Boston kids and, and I love Connaughton. Actually three Boston kids. Shit. I forgot about that, but those three, like those, are three good examples of guys who just sort of does the little things to to keep themselves like relevant on the court because obviously they're not going to be number one options. They're going to be the fifth, fourth, or fifth best player on the court at all times. So they just sort of find ways to sort of get things done. And pretty cool to watch. No doubt. Yeah, we'll continue to come up with a few more plays that we see along the way. Next one is, hey guys, what sort of tests are you going through before signing for a new team? And are these tests mandatory? prior to the validation of a trade or sig- or signature of a new contract? Are they specific to each organization? Does the NBA impose a standard bunch of tests? In light with in light of the Bosch-Aldridge situation, do you know of any deal that fell through because of a failed medical, and that's Nicholas from Sydney? Ever rarely does it happen. I think the Tyson Chandler one was the last big one that fell through, uh, for, in a big trade that fell through because of a medical. I'd have to, have to Google toe. who it was. Um, you know, Chris- Bad Bo- toe. Yeah, it was bad. So it was, 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 he was going to Charlotte, wasn't he, or from Charlotte? I can't. Oh no, to OKC maybe. I can't remember the specifics. No, he no, he was going to go. Oak, he was going to go to from New Orleans to OKC. They would have been a juggernaut That's if right. that trade went through because they didn't really give up much. Yeah, and they they nixed the trade. So it ever rarely happens. A lot of times, don't forget some of these trades. A majority these days of trades aren't necessarily made for on-court production. They're done for salary reasons. So if you, even if you knew a player, you know, like f- for instance, myself towards the end of my career, you knew I got an injury history. There's probably something that's lingering. Um, it'll be a deal to fit in salary. It'll be a deal to like he's not really we're not we're not signing him so much to play 40 minutes. So th- there's that. The tests are pretty standard for each team. They aren't. There's nothing detailed about them, in my opinion. If you've got something that's chronic, they'll generally all they'll do is say, we want an MRI of your bad ankle or we want an MRI of your bad shoulder. You'll go see the team doc. Um, now, team docs aren't paid by the NBA teams. 
that's one thing people don't realize and absolutely shocked when I tell them. Team doctors are not paid by NBA teams. They do it pro bono. They do it to put the the team's logo and the NBA logo on their business card and they do it to be involved with the team generally and, and be part of a team. And you know, if you're part of the Golden State Warriors, you got a chance to, to, to win three or four championships in five years. So it's a fantastic thing to talk about, a fantastic event in your life. But they do not draw a salary, which is just, you know, when you talk to people here in Australia, they're, they're, you're telling me $100 million athletes, uh, are, you know, the doctor's not paid, which is mind-boggling. But other than that, the tests are your basic. They'll bang your knee with one of those little medical hammers. They'll bang your joints, make sure your nerves are all working. They'll, they'll move your hips around a little bit. They'll move your back around. And that's about it. It's literally 10, 15 minutes and you're out of the door. So look, you can hide stuff. There's, there's been numerous players that have hid stuff. There is, um, I will actually say this story for story time because I think it's a good one, but there is a story I'll tell at the end of this about about what you can do with medicals. But I mean, you probably haven't seen that too much pro, but I'm, I'm sure you've seen guys kind of get a pass probably when they shouldn't have just because the team really wants that player. Yeah, and, and I think you could sign off on it because I, I remember in Boston, we traded for Ray friends and I'm not sure if he failed. He, he came from Dallas. We traded Antoine Walker and it was you know, a multiplayer deal and I think he had something with his knee, but we sort of signed off on it. I've, I'm not sure, but um, weird deal. But yeah, it happens like Sometimes, like, I know Antoine Walker had something with his knee, like chronic um, arthritis or bone degenerate, uh, just bone, like bad bone, like bone on bone. So, like, there, there has been some things. I think a couple of trades that I think got rescinded. I think Sharif Abdul-Rahim, they found something with him. He had to retire when he was, like, 32. And I think that uh, Katino Mobley, actually, the trade got rescinded because of his heart condition. But... Yeah, mostly a lot of these trades do come up with issues and they just sort of sign off on the trade anyway instead of just like, you know, failing the trade. I, I think that some of this stuff does come up. And remember, um, what, what happened this year? It was, um, who was the kid, folks? Uh, Karis Levert. He had the kidney yep, thing and, right. um, the Indiana deal. So, you know, they could have rescinded the trade. They didn't. And things salary like that come up, but yeah. salary was a play in that as well. Yeah. So they had to they had to make that work. So that's my point. Like sometimes it's not not necessarily if you're a live body and you've got a heartbeat and you can <laughs> just report without playing basketball. Sometimes I'll continue on with the trade. Exactly, and that's that's sort of where it comes up. And then the testing, like I think it's sort of just standard medical. You know that they just want to make sure that I think they do. They sort of walk you through the fine two comb just to make sure that you don't have anything that the other team was either missing or hiding from you know from the team they traded to and i think they you know in a lot of these cases with lavert it probably saved his life you know like some of these things you know i know with mobley you know he had a, like a regular heartbeat like some of these things and then you saw it with the aldridge trade like you know some of these things are very important and what you know life you know life-changing deals yeah where, jeff green was you know, one as well God. yep yeah jeff green it came up like some of this stuff just comes up and and thank God they deal with it, and they've got great they got great doctors that work with most of these organizations, and they could just deal with it. But yeah, those are some of those things that I've heard about. But yeah, it comes up from time to time. Yeah, I mean, just got to do as much kind of homework as you can, and most most of the injuries are public media written about them when guys get hurt. But you can you can hide them, and I'll get to that a little bit later. 
Next one, I'm baffled by what the Warriors are doing at the moment. There has been many an opinion given about whether they go all in for another championship with Steph or try to work it out on, on a balance of bringing the next generation through. Whichever option they choose, continuing to play Steph and winning enough games to possibly make the playing tournament, especially now Wiseman is done for the year, makes absolutely no sense to me. Can either of you make any argument for why they are persisting and haven't shut it down? Cheers, that's from Nico. That's a tough one. I've, I've had this discussion about... You know, I think we have on this podcast where they're in that no man's land for the NBA teams, but I can tell you, you're not going to tell Steph Curry to tank. Um, you're probably not going to tell Steve Kerr to tank. You're not going to tell Draymond Green to tank. So that's that's the first reason. Are they in a position to win a championship in the next year or two? I don't think so. I just we we we, we had this as fact or fake news a few podcasts ago. I think they're a little ways away. I think even with a healthy clay, they're still not a, a championship team. I think they're close. They still need to find that Andre Guadala and that. You know, whether it's myself or Zaza or Javelle, they're still a, a, a veteran key pieces away. And, and it goes back to our point about the discussion around making that move for, for Bradley Beal. That's why I would have made that move. I would have made that move. I, I know Wiseman's a young prospect. You don't know how good he's going to be, but we don't know how good he's going to be. We know how good Beal is right now. So I would make that deal where I'd say, okay, Wiseman and that pick, that minute, you know, that, that, that first round, you know, hopefully top five pick for them, top 10 pick. I would make that trade for Beal. I would make that offer and, and try to bring Beal in next to Steph, Draymond, Wiggins. Um, then you got Clay coming back. That's probably, you know, a roster that's getting you close. Um, a few tweaks, a few buyout minimum guys that'll come and want to join Juggernaut. I think you got a legit chance of, of, of potentially making a finals game again, but with their current roster, um, I don't think I love Clay, um, but I don't think he's going to save the day as far as people thinking, oh, Clay's back next next season. We're going to be competing for a championship again. I still think they're, you know, Clay back, it puts him maybe at five, four, five, somewhere in the West um, at best. So uh, how do you see all that? Yeah, Bogues, when, when we had that discussion a few, you know, a couple of months ago, whenever we had it, like that, that, that pick actually had a lot of value to it because you figured that Minnesota wasn't really trending in the right direction. You figured that you were going to get a pretty high pick either this year if they fell out, you know, fell out to go to four, but definitely that unprotected pick the next year. Then sort of Minnesota wins some games, they make some changes, they win some games. And now, like we said, like it looks like Minnesota will probably get the pick this year, even though it's, you know, it's iffy, but they'll probably get it this year, be much improved next year. So that pick sort of loses value. The more you waited on it, you know, to make a trade, the less value it sort of has. And your team's sort of in no man's land battling for that 10-9-8 spot where now your pick isn't as valuable as it was. Wiseman's still valuable and you could still, you know, but that Obre, that Obre deal, um, I'm not sure what Obre's got left. Real quick, I'll just check on it. Yeah, like, so he's on a last year of a $14 million deal. So, like, I don't know if you could sign and trade him. I doubt you can. I'm not sure. But, like, now your chances of actually acquiring another player is slim to none based on the pick and, and, thing, and, and having a salary player to bring someone back. Now that the Washington's winning, you know, obviously they're not going to make a trade for Beal. You know, they're going to roll with what they have. So, it's like now your chances – like, I thought if they could get something, if they could make a blockbuster deal with that pick – combine with Kelly Oubre, combine with Wiseman, get a really big-time player, and then put him with Thompson, put him with Draymond, put him with Steph, and then maybe build something. But look, their second unit's a mess. They don't really have the firepower to be a contender, even with those guys coming back. 
Wiseman's a good player. I don't think he'll be a great player, but it's so early to tell. And then, so, and then you've got Draymond who's getting a little older. You got Steph who's getting a little older, even though he's not playing like it. He's playing like, you know, one of the best seasons of his career. Like, you do have some good things, but, you know, where do you go from here? The only way your, your, your salary caps out, out the roof. I mean, the luxury tax stuff is, I mean, the, what they're going to have to pay going forward is ridiculous with the, with the money they've got on their books. So it's like, they're handcuffed salary wise. Their picks are, you know, the, the value of the picks they can make for trades are going down. Um, they don't really have much of a second unit. So even if you did make a blockbuster, you have to reshape that, you know, uh, that's going to, that, that'll be a tough work. So I don't know what they do. You know, they, well, I think, I think you'll probably be more right than I am as far as being a championship contender. Like, I don't know where this goes. You're going to have to deal Wiseman. If, if, if this is going to like have any traction, you're probably going to have to deal Wiseman. You're going to have to deal that one pick, maybe multiple picks to get something. And then you got to try to make some type of salary work, you know, to try to bring back a really good player. But I don't think there are any great players acquirable, you know, so I don't know. Like, you know, it's one thing to like go on NBA, uh, go on ESPN.com trade machine and work out these fucking fairy tale trades, but I don't, I don't think that there's really that many players acquirable that they can get like, you know, and if they are, what are they going to do? Get Kevin Love? That he's, he makes $30 million. Like you're going to have to come up with like 25 and a half to $26 million of salary going out to try to get a player like that. Like, and even, I don't know if obviously he's not going to take you over the edge anyway. Um, I just don't know how that's going to work. But I really don't like, I don't see any really big prospect. Like, Steph makes 43, Clay makes 35, Wiggins makes 29. Nobody's taken him. I got a better tra- chance of getting traded than he does. Draymond Green makes 22, right? And then, like, Oubre comes off. So, I think you could sign and trade him maybe in the summer, but I mean, no one's really taken him. Why, you know, and then everybody else makes, like, 8, 4, 2, 2, 2, 1, 5. So, like, trying to get a player is going to be really tough for them. So, they're, they're sort of in that no-man's land I think they'll be much improved with Clay coming back, but I I don't know how much more because you can't acquire anybody through free agency because you're strapped because you're paying so much in luxury tax. I I don't see where this team could really plunge up. So you're shorting the Warriors. You I think three or four weeks ago I did a fact or fake news around Steph will win another championship with the Warriors. You were you were fact changing your tune. I did. I did. I thought that they would on trade deadline. I think we had this talk. Oh shoot! What I think it was over a month because yeah, it was, it was, it was trade time. deadline. Yep. I thought that they would. I thought that they could make a blockbuster, and then if they could get a Bradley Beal type, if they could get Brad, if they could have got Bradley Beal in a trade, in which at that time Washington was in the shitter, and you know there was a little bit of things coming out that Bradley wasn't all that happy. This and that could have been fake news. I'm not sure, but like there were some things that could have worked in my opinion, but now. Hey, look, I'll, I'll call it when I, I call it when I see it when I'm when I think I'm wrong. I think it's going to be really tough, especially with their second unit not being great, and then they're getting a little older. It's it's not like they could acquire another. You know, they're not going to draft another Harrison Barnes. They're not going to acquire another Kevin Durant. Like I don't see where that next piece is going to come from. I don't. I think Wiseman's good, but I don't think he's like this great player, and especially how the center has been. Uh, you know, sort of demonetized in the NBA these days, 
you know, especially the system, way they need yeah. to play. And that system, you know, for a center, like we've had this discussion too, it's a unique situation. So I, I, I agree. I mean, I think it's – they're just in that spot where – you hit it too, they're aging. Like Steph's getting older. I think he's got two or three years probably at this high level max and then he'll he'll still be a very good player because he shoots the ball so well. But, you know, 35, 36, 37, time is of the essence. Draymond, his game is based on, you know, he's not overly athletic, but he's, he's pretty quick in his position. He's undersized. So he, he'll, you know, that'll start slowing down mid-30s. So my window, they've got a two or three window right now. They need to, if they're going to try to win a championship, it's now. Like you can't, you can't build. But it, that's the question for their front office and direction. Do they start going young and rebuilding? Um, but, you know, Steph's going to be a career Golden State player. I don't see him ever playing anywhere else. So then you've got that elephant in the room of Steph wants to win at all costs and, and rightfully so. He's earned that privilege. So it will be a fun one to watch to see if they pivot and, and you know, how the mighty have fallen. I guess it's 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 hard to watch but being a guy that was there, you know, yeah. where they're at now is, is pretty dismal. Yeah. And, and like the next level of things you could do, you're not going to trade Steph, obviously. You could think about trading Draymond Green, but I don't think his value is that high to teams that are going to like I think Draymond is a great piece where if you have two players that are better than him, you know, if you're lucky, three players that are better than him, and then you add him to the equation with his contract, it's tough. Clay Thompson, if you're thinking about trading Clay at some point, like, you know, obviously the, the injuries that he sustained in advanced age, you know, no one really knows what's going to go on with him. So like, I guess the only other thing you could do is think about trading Draymond, but Draymond's at 24 million, 25 million, 27 million. You know, that's a lot of money to take. And I don't think he could be your best player, but he's like your Dennis, like, you know, he's like your Dennis Rodman to the, you know, Chicago Bulls. Like if you have all these scorers and guys and he's the tough guy, the defender, the, the guy who talks shit and gets everybody fucked up, you know, by what he says and how he acts in the court in a good way for you. But like, I just don't see anybody really giving you a great piece for a Draymond Green. You know, like, so that's the thing. They're, I think they're, they're limited in what they can do. They're not going to trade Steph. But what happens if Steph doesn't? I think Steph could walk this year, can he, or next year? I think he can, but I don't think he will. I mean, he'd be. They, they, I don't think I so. I think Golden no. State fans would riot if the Warriors let him walk or traded him. So that's my mindset. I think he'll. I think he'll stay there. I think he's. He's a Bay Area guy. He loves it there. Um, his wife's involved with a lot of different things there. So I just don't see it. But anyway, we'll continue to watch it. I think it's the front office has their work cut out for him. So we'll see if they pull a rabbit out of the hat. I just want to finish real quick because we're running out of time. I'm going to touch on a medical um, story that I've heard from a few friends of mine in the industry um, from back in the day. So we talk about the injury stuff, right? So there's a story about, do you remember when Vladi Divac signed with the Lakers towards the end of his career? What, late in his career? Yeah, so he was with the Lakers early and then he went to Charlotte and then he went to Sacramento and then he signed with the Lakers. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. I think he and he barely played any games. Okay, so the story goes like this. So they they wanted to bring Vladi back more as a you know, play spot minutes, 15, 20 minutes. Um they were I think they were I don't know what year it was, I'd have to look it up, but he comes for the basically comes to, for the signing. They signed him on a two year five million, I believe. I think they gave him a decent deal towards the end of his career. And 
he 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 shows up. So El Segundo was their old practice facility back in the day, and the offices were up though. There were some stairs on the side of the, of the practice court that go up to the offices. His back was fucked up. Like it was it was to the point where the dude like could like could barely walk. Right. So they had to give him had to give him some sort of I think for the day for the workout he took a cortisone or or some sort of injection just to get through the workout because the Lakers wanted to see like are you you know you're good to go or whatever. So he does a workout, passes it. I guess it's it's the next day he comes in to sign his contract. He he could, couldn't really get up the stairs, right? So the agent that I, that I knew that was handling it, the team that was handling it, they, they had some people with them. Uh, they let I think it was Kupchik at the time, whoever it was, walk in front of them, and they had a dude either side of Vardy, and with each step, each step basically gave his gave him a shove on the hip. So one step up, one step up to get up the stairs. That's how bad his back was. Signs a contract. I think he played, did like a bit of the training camp, bit of the preseason, and then that was it. Was done. Shut down. Five million things. And it was to the point where like the GM at the time, I think it was Kupchik, was just like, all right, guys, you got me. Like, good one. Ha ha kind of thing. And and it was, yeah, they, they I, I believe it was something along those lines. Like they knew his back was messed up and- you know, he thought he thought maybe I can get to get to a preseason, do some training, some weight work, and it'll be good. And it was never the same. But um, that's that's a story that that travels through the grapevine in the NBA. I had one a guy that played summer league with an NBA team. I don't want to blow up the the team or what have you. It was like early two thousands. They were in summer league in Boston. This guy came from China, f- tore his knee in China, and the GM who just didn't care it was summer league, so he didn't care. Like so, he was moving a little bit. He didn't like. He tore, just had a partial tear, but he couldn't really play. So they're in summer league practice, uh, training camp. They're going through the physical and the trainer sort of knew something was wrong. The GM came, you know, he has like a drink in his hand, whatever, coffee, whatever. He goes, Hey, you know, Johnny, what's going on? He goes, Ah, nothing. And the doctor, I mean, the, the trainer was like, Look, I think we have a problem with the knee. He goes, Hey, how's the knee, by the way? The player was like, Oh, it's great. He goes, Ah, no, fuck it. Sign it. So he signed the paperwork. The guy couldn't play in summer league. And he and the team had to pay for his fucking uh, for his surgery and pay him throughout the year, you know, because of uh, a prior injury that he had in China that he didn't tell the team about, and because they didn't they didn't sort of follow through, then they ended up having to pay like a couple hundred grand to the kid. Oh, smooth move. It's a good move if you can get it right. If you, if they don't do their due diligence, bad luck. But, Shit, you know, I'm in the wrong business. That's it. Slip and fall, baby. Anyhow, that wraps up episode <laughs> 18. Thanks. It's been a long one. Hope you enjoyed. Um, at Hoop Consultants for all of pros clips and commentary on on different things, basketball wise, and then at Rogue Bogues on all your social media platforms and podcast platforms. Thanks again, and thanks, Pro. Folks, thanks for having me on, brother. I appreciate you.